Welcome to This Just In, the show bringing you the latest advancements in healthcare, strategy, innovation, and public policy. And now, for the fastest voice in healthcare, here's your host, Justin Barnes. The show will go on. Welcome to the special edition of This Just In Radio. I'm your host, Justin Barnes. Today, we're broadcasting live from the Atlanta studios. As most of you know, we're supposed to be in sunny Orlando for the HIMSS 20 conference. But with that being canceled due to the coronavirus precautions, I could not be happier that we're still able to pull this show off. Many thanks to all of my guests that stuck with me and all of you to make this show happen today. Before we get too far, though, let me introduce you to my radio and on-air personality and producer, Stone Payton from Business Radio X. Welcome, my friend. Thank you, sir. It's great to have you here. This is actually Stone and my sixth year in a row broadcasting live from a HIMSS uh, event, but uh, HIMSS 15 was the very first one in Orlando that we went off with, um, and that was a 90-minute show, but it was 90 minutes live on air, my very first and my longest broadcast of the, of the time, mm-hmm. but it went off perfectly, and you're a great producer. You made me so comfortable on air, so thank you so much, my friend. My pleasure. Uh, that was just a great, that's a phenomenal time for all of us. We launched a great annual trend of healthcare, strategy, and thought leadership. Um, also in studio today is a great friend of the show and producer, Roberta Mullen, broadcasting us live to 30,000 people across the Healthcare Now radio network as well. Welcome, Roberta. Thanks, Justin, for inviting me. I love being in studio with you. Yeah, you're always a great personality here to have with us, and um, we truly appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to join us. You're going to obviously be with me in Orlando as well, along with Stone, uh, but again, it's great to be here all together in our Atlanta studios. My, my schedule is a little freed up today. <laughs> exactly. All of ours are. <laughs> but, uh, but just so everyone also knows, you can stream us live until 4 p.m. Eastern today at brxlive.com thisjustinradio.com, and certainly healthcarenowradio.com. We have several other stations and networks also picking this live broadcast up. So many thanks to everyone for tuning in. And again, I'm so proud. This is now our sixth live syndicated and multi-network radio broadcast dedicated to the HIMSS annual conference. Over the next three hours, we'll be bringing you the industry's most sought-after CEOs, CIOs, care providers, policy leaders, and visionaries. We even had the two-hour uh, p.m. slot uh, slotted for special guests from the ONC to discuss the new interoperability rules just published yesterday. You certainly do not, want, do not want to miss that and hear directly from the ONC leadership. If anyone does miss any part of this broadcast, though, all of my This Justin Radio shows are always posted on iTunes, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, Spreaker, Google Play, and the TuneIn platforms. As many of you know, my goal in broadcasting live each year from the HIMSS annual conference is to create an information medium that shares best practices, strategies, and actionable intelligence from the industry's leading sources and experts. We're very fortunate that most of these guests are also members of our health innovation think tank, where we transparently share healthcare and health IT best practices, as well as strategies. You can find out more about the think tank at healthinnovationthinktank.com. While this is our six-year broadcasting around a HIMSS annual conference. This would actually have been my 23rd HIMSS conference. So this is a really tough trend to break. Um, but I know a great announcement is coming up later regarding a HIMSS 20 conference opportunity for everyone. So if you checked out the run of show, actually Hal Wolf will be joining us at 3.40 p.m. today to make a really cool announcement. So present CEO of HIMSS. Um, but before we go any farther, though, I want to put out a special thanks to this Justin Radio uh, production partners, Lenovo Health, Business Radio X, Rama on Healthcare, Healthcare Now Radio, and certainly the HIMSS organization for the, all their continued support through the years. My goal 
with all of my guests today will be to offer tactics and strategies to not only survive, but to thrive as you navigate your hospital, your physician practice, your clinic, your company, or even your family through all of these changes occurring across healthcare. There is more opportunity than ever before for all of us to thrive, but you must understand how healthcare is evolving, where it's evolving, how policy and reimbursement is shifting, and where best practices and innovation can support your efforts and all of our efforts. I hope you glean all of this over the next several hours. At least that's my goal. So now, I'd love to introduce my very first guest, Dr. Bob Monteverdi, Global Director of Healthcare Solutions for Lenovo Health. Welcome back to the show, Bob. Great to have you here. Hey, Justin. How are you? Fantastic. Thank you for taking time out of your, your busy life to join our show today. Sorry it's not face-to-face in Orlando, but uh, circumstances <laughs> have changed that, right? I know. But uh, we always do. You guys are great partners. We, you guys just help us produce the show every year. We're grateful for that. Um, but let's take a moment um, to glean some of your thought leadership. Obviously, you're always a great guest that we have uh, each year. But what uh, healthcare or health IT trends are you seeing in the industry and that you're going to navigate in this coming year and beyond? Yeah, to me, it's, it's really a lot of the usual suspects with a couple of new things popping in. But, um, you know, obviously with the, uh, the advent of the interoperability rules, which I'm sure we'll be talking about quite a bit on this show <laughs> with the ONC, uh, there's that, that, that just kind of begs the, the, this balancing act of data access, convenience, and security. That, that, that has been something that healthcare has been juggling for, uh, since the beginning of data being captured electronically. And, uh, I, I don't see it going away anytime soon. You know, v- very interesting ruling this week. There'll be people on both sides of that argument. But overall, uh, I'm a fan. I think, uh, patients owning their data and being able to gain access to it while still maintaining security and having the APIs in place to enable that are, are important. Um, you know, AI augmented uh, is really another a big play. Artificial intelligence, augmented reality. There's a couple of big ones there that we we get involved in here at Lenovo. But that uh, that that whole idea of using analytics and taking it beyond to be able to help. Uh, you see a lot of AI with assistive diagnosis occurring. There's a lot more places we can go. And augmented reality, of course, is something that will become an increasingly more used tool in, in healthcare um, as an assistive tool, I think, uh, during the day-to-day life of physicians. Uh, all of those are, you know, they've been around um, for quite some time. The one that I kind of see is the newer kid on the block, and, and, and it's virtual health. Mm-hmm. It goes by many different names, virtual health, virtual care. But um, it's, it's moving quite a bit beyond telehealth, and that's the one that's really been intriguing me over the last, you know, couple of years. When you start looking at going from just the basic e-visits and moving into remote patient monitoring and patient adherence and behavior modifications, that that's a big, big difference. And, and where I see that really focused on is chronic care. Chronic care contributes to the biggest portion of our, our costs in this nation, arguably, depending on which stat you want to use, somewhere in a 75% plus range of, of the three plus trillion dollars that we spend is focused on chronic care. Not really a big surprise considering aging populations increasing, uh, physician shortages, uh, actually another factor in that as well. Um, it, it's just a, uh, it, it's something that needs to be addressed by, by this nation and it's never going to replace care, but it's a good augmentation of it. So I see that, you know, many drivers along the ones we just mentioned, when I start looking at the value that could be achieved from that, it really is very patient centric. I see improvement in patient adherence. Definitely more patient engagement while you're able to do more frequent monitoring of the data on a recurring basis and interact remotely through, through assistive AI devices. Patient satisfaction increases. 
the potential to expand geographic patient access, of course, increases when it's more remote. And then, of course, data outcomes improving, which is really the, the key game. Um, also, you know, there's some financial advantages, too, where you look at anything that can help reduce patient admissions or readmissions specifically within a 30, 60, 90-day time frame back into the hospital, avoids penalties and makes patients a whole lot happier. And then lastly, of course, you're aware with all the, the new codes that keep getting more and more robust each each uh, quarter and each year, CMS uh, with increasing reimbursement of that remote patient monitoring and other private insurances following suit. So I'll stop to breathe, but those are the, those are the big ones. Uh, and, and again, I think virtual play is really becoming very, very intriguing. Yeah, I, actually, I couldn't agree more. And I think the only, you know, if you want to look at a silver lining to what's happening right now, across our country and obviously globally is that um, a lot of these uh, precautions right now and, and what we're, how we're changing healthcare and looking at healthcare regarding coronavirus and COVID-19 is just the, the um, um, push and focus on what telehealth, what remote patient monitoring, remote care uh, can do and what it, what it needs to do today. Uh, we've known this, you know, you're a leader here. We've been doing this for 10, 15, 20 years. We've known the opportunity here but now this is bringing it to the forefront. So now it's certainly part of our conversation on a daily basis. States like North Carolina, actually, where you reside, um, is moving forward uh, right now. Actually started yesterday um, where they can, you can actually be paid same as an office visit, uh, a virtual care visit, you know, a telehealth visit. So that's those kind of changes we've been asking for and needing for a while. They're, they're basic common sense. Uh, and, and now you're starting to see them take hold. So I, I couldn't agree more with what you just, you know, went through uh, in the strategy that you defined. So, you know, kind of a, as a, as a closing next step, just to give my next, we've got about 30 seconds of here to go. Um, but uh, where do you think people should be looking at uh, in the next uh, two years um, when you say virtual care? Like give us just a kind of a heads up of where you think we should look at it on the horizon. Yeah, I think it's some of the things I just kind of you know, said at the end of that there. It's it's thinking well, well beyond the, the whole idea of just these visits. And think of it really focused around behavior modification. It, it's really about getting patients uh, who aren't always necessarily the most adherent to do what you want them to do, to be able to monitor them more frequently, to know that the, the monitoring effect that their physicians and providers are, are looking in on them and trying to help automated alerting, uh, well, that whole mix can, can help make patients want to do better. There's the gamification aspect to that, but additionally, it's uh, the stakes are high. It's, it's it's their health, so you want to know that someone's checking in on you, that someone's there for you, and uh, all of those factors. In, in addition to building those tiny little habits of making sure they're eating the right foods, getting the sleep, taking the meds when they're supposed to, they're all really really important. I see more and more of that growing, and potentially even expanding into you know more linking together with smart home less of the uh, FDA-centric, uh, you know, approved devices, which are core to the healthcare aspect, but seeing that expand out to smart home and, then of course, family members being able to tap in as well and, uh, and help with that care. I, I, I think this is a bit of a juggernaut that's not going to slow down. Excellent. I love it, and you're spot on, Bob. Thank you very much. I appreciate you joining our broadcast today, and obviously you're always a great, great partner of the show, and we truly appreciate that. You have a great rest of your day, and obviously stay tuned because we've got some great guests coming up as well, Bob. Thank you, my friend. It's an unbelievable uh, agenda there, Justin. Very great array of, of, of people. So thank you very much. Happy thank to you. participate. Thank you, my friend. Take care. And now, Stone, do we have the next all-star celebrity joining us? I believe we do. <laughs> Is Anish Chopra on the line? The one and only. Hey, Justin, it's Anish. It's so nice to hear your voice. How are you, Anish? 
Well, I couldn't be, well, I'm a, we're of two minds, right? We're ecstatic about the state of policy, but really despondent about COVID-19. And so how, how can I be both exuberant and enthusiastic, but somber at the same time? It's a little bit hard. Excellent. But you are wearing your pink socks, correct? <laughs> virtual. <laughs> virtual. Virtual pink virtual socks. pink socks. I love it. I love it. <laughs> I know we can't, it's hard to be, we, we've got so much happening in our lives right now, but I love your energy, your enthusiasm. And I know with bright people like you and brilliant people like you, we will solve these issues and we'll solve them more quickly. So thank you for being well, here Well, I'm excited to join you this morning and excited about, uh, uh, you know, hopefully uh, keeping the momentum uh, moving uh, on the heels of yesterday. So ha- happy to dive in. You got it. So what healthcare or health IT trends are you seeing in the industry, my friend? Well, look, I, I see the lens as I see it, which mm-hmm. is, the public-private interface, and there are three things that I'm paying attention to. Number one, the uh, regulatory news from yesterday, there has been this consistent drumbeat for the last decade that the information we need to do a job to make healthcare better is a little bit of a collective action problem. No one actor is evil and getting in the way, but collectively we just haven't made as much progress with a new floor, a regulatory floor, I'm very confident that this will lead to a trend of less discussion about the need for interoperability Mm -hmm. and much more of a focus on uses. So that's point number one. The trend here is uh, liquidity is coming slash uh, interop uh, talking points are going to fall. That's hope, number one. The second public-private interface that I'm focused on is payment reform. All of this is moot if we don't have an economic model that drives better value in the healthcare delivery system. So true. Paying a great deal of attention on two models specifically. Uh, CMS launched primary care first to rip the Band-Aid off primary care capitation and has opened the window for any other health plan to join, whether that's a commercial plan, another Medicare Advantage plan, a Medicaid managed care plan, or a healthcare.gov plan, any kind of plan can participate in the model so that a greater share of a physician's panel could be organized under the same economic uh, arrangement. That should make it a lot easier for doctors to participate in this new model when you don't have to practice one kind of medicine in the morning and then a second kind of medicine in the afternoon, depending on the particular contract with which that patient is uh, the insurance contract tied to the patient. So point number two is how many plans will join CMS in Mm. ripping the Band-Aid on primary care capitation? Related to that is the new direct contracting model Mm -hmm. where uh, CMS basically said we've had these two worlds, unmanaged uh, fee-for-service that's evolved into ACOs but there's also been this sort of dive into Medicare Advantage if you want to go full risk. Now there's a happy alternative, which is for physicians that want to stay in the traditional Medicare program but want the economic arrangement to align the incentives for uh, capitation akin to what they might do in a a global risk contract in MA. That's the second uh, area in this uh, pay-to-value trend that I'm exploring. How many health plans join Medicare and how deep does the Medicare program on capitation run across the delivery system? So we talked about interoperability as trend one. We've talked about payment reform as trend two. Uh, Near and dear to my heart in trend three 
is the broader transparency movement. Mm -hmm. How do we make yeah. aggregate data sets available for us to understand what works and what doesn't in the healthcare delivery system? And that is where, first of all, it's my day job at Care Journey, mm -hmm. but it's also uh, CMS leading the way, adding Medicaid encounters to the Medicare open data sets means that 120 million Americans' claims history is available for research to study mm -hmm. what is or is not working, which physicians, networks, and facilities are delivering better care relative to their peers. I love it. I love it. So, so the source of all that public-private collaboration. Yep. Yeah. So just on that last part there, what can we do? That's an area where transparency is massive, significant in my world as well. Where can we push on that? Or how do we, how do we become more transparent? And what levers do we pull there, in your opinion? So the government's starting with what it can do, mm -hmm. which is uh, that which is under its control to release. The very obvious next step is how do we create a comparable uh, movement amongst the, the private plans? Mm -hmm. I'm on the board of the Healthcare Cost Institute. We've been a voluntary collaboration amongst a few key plan partners. Can we scale that model where uh, health plans create effectively a, a virtual research enclave so that uh, we can look across all population types, not just government-sponsored, for understanding what works? That's on the claims and administrative data side. You and I, Justin, have talked in the past that the holy grail is to get to quality data, which involves the EHR uh, mm -hmm. uh, information. And so how do we create the same culture of openness and sharing as it relates to quality data? And will that come because the government will mandate some of that? Will it become uh, part of the norm because we voluntarily created the conditions for these sort of clinical registries to pop up? That's an open question, but one that we will be spending the next X number of months and years grappling with, Justin. No, I, I completely agree. I think my a closing question is to keep stay on this a little bit. My, Roberta just shared it with me. What plan, do plans have incentives to do that yet, or what do you think there, the other plans? Well, plans. that's a, great, that's a mm -hmm. great question. I think the uh, no individual plan feels like their willingness to go open is going to give them an immediate advantage. We almost need to have multiple plans diving off the deep end at the same time right. to really feel like it. We all know that it's better to have transparency, but we're anxious about going first. Right. So I fear the industry is waiting on government action. Mm -hmm. If you remember the bipartisan uh, Lamar Alexander, Patty Murray uh, bill, uh, lowering health care costs act, I believe they called it last year, yes. included a national all-payer claims database. That would have been a vehicle for that public-private model to take hold with a bedrock of government uh, action. Short of that, I think there may be a few opportunities for us to do that. States are doing it with APCDs, and the more we both collect the data and open it up for a, a myriad number of uses, uh, the better we're going to be. Love it. So in our final minute or so, what, 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 first of all, what do you love most about the interoperability rule yesterday? Since that is so timely. What do you think is the best component of that bill, that rule? I mean, Well, look, culturally and technically, making sure that everyone has to point the data to consumers mm -hmm. just completely reduces the concerns about, well, I can't share because of HIPAA, what's data minimization, all the contractual, call them, in, in the U.S. government, we used to have a term for this, which is the non-technical trade barriers. So you'd have global trade and then you have all these random barriers that get in the yes. way that are not tied to the trade agreement. We have in the B2B world of healthcare data sharing, mm 
a lot of non-tariff trade barriers. Uh, on the consumer side, it's clear. So as long as everyone knows the rules of the road, connect to the consumer, then uh, we can empower individuals to trust the networks that they believe will help them make smarter decisions. That has to be the most important takeaway from yesterday. Mm. And my hope is that uh, once we get beyond this, we will move those non-tariff trade barriers uh, through policy and other means uh, in order to get to the better, the better place. So that's the uh, that's the uh, that's what I take on the on the conversation. Yep. Awesome. Anish, I truly appreciate your time, my friend. I know you have a busy schedule. You have a lot going on. You're always a phenomenal guest and supporter of the show. So thank you, my friend. Keep up the great work, Justin. Mm-hmm. Have a great day. You as well, my friend. Talk to you soon. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. And continuing on with this amazing lineup, I believe Dr. Rasu Shresha, EVP and Chief Strategy Officer from Atrium Health. You're on the line. I am indeed. How are you doing, Justin? (laughs) Fantastic. I'm sorry we're not in person right now, my friend, but uh, obviously things change, but I'm grateful for your continued support and you joining us today. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to be here, and I'm I'm glad that we're actually doing this virtually, right, (laughs) with with everything that's going on around the the COVID-19 outbreak. Uh, I think this is not just the the prudent thing to do, but is, this is also the right thing to do in terms of um, us doing our part to contain um, the outbreak, but also at the same time engaging in stimulating conversations like what you're having uh, right now. I completely agree, my friend. And I, I, I'm, I will be remiss if I did not say I walked into the studio today. And our producer, Stone, had a thing of Clorox bleach-free hand sanitizer right in front of my microphone and head, uh, headset. So thank you for that, Stone. <laughs> yeah. Wonderful. That's I love it. The right approach. There you go. So, Rasu, what healthcare or health IT trends are you seeing in the industry that you can share with my guests today? Yeah. So, uh, you know, there's so many trends uh, that are out there. One thing that I thought I'd point out um, would be a good perspective is I- I'm seeing a lot of um, – cross-fertilization happening, a lot of morphing happening in front of our very eyes. Mm. There are providers who are becoming payers. There are payers who are becoming providers. There are employers who are becoming providers. And there are a bunch of other vertical plays at that, right? So it's really interesting. A lot of, uh, you know, cross-fertilization. You know, I I was um, at UPMC before I moved to Atrium Health, right? And UPMC, as you know, was a large or is a large provider organization and is doing very well on the payer side, Memorial Hermann, a similar story. And there are others out there. And then payers like Optum and Humana, uh, you know, they're, they're getting into the provider space, whether it's in primary care or in other areas, uh, employers uh, becoming providers as well. So you're seeing a lot of that happening, whether it's in Healthstat or Marathon Health. And then a number of other vertical plays, you know, CBS and Aetna coming together and, and doing a lot of interesting things in that space. So it's really interesting when you look at these trends, you say, all right, what does that then mean for us, right, for the rest of us in, in terms of healthcare, whether you're, you know, actively, uh, uh, you know, part of that vertical integration play that's happening or, you know, you're, you're essentially trying to either react or be pro- more proactive uh, in, in, the, in those that I just mentioned, I think the onus is on us to make sure that we're able to be a lot more intelligent, not just wait and watch, but be a lot more intelligent and proactive in, uh, in, in seeing all of those trends and, and coming out as winners. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I've seen everything that you just walked through um, from the health systems being, you know, I call them pay riders or employers becoming providers. I, I'm 
either a part of that or I've seen all of that right in front of us, even in my community, but also nationally. And, and I think it's an essential part of, of communities pivoting to survive and to offer healthcare at uh, the most affordable option that they have available. So I, I, I think it's a yep. phenomenal trend to point out. What do you, so I guess taking a next step, what would you point out as a best practice or strategy that you can help others to navigate those trends or, or point them in the direction to, to explore? What would you say there? Yeah, so I'd say a couple of things. Um, you know, first and foremost, I think it's really important because you see a lot of the hype, a lot of the trends out there. And even in these vertical integrations, you know, you're seeing a lot of startups and, and larger entities, you know, capitalizing on capabilities like artificial intelligence and blockchain. There's a lot of hype out there. So I'd, I'd say, you know, three things. One, it's really important for us to break out of that hype cycle, right? Mm-hmm. And really focus on what's real. And there's a lot of things that are real out there, even in AI, even in blockchain. There's a lot of things that are real out there. So let's let's get out of our own way when it comes to this hype cycle and let's focus in on what's real. That's number one. Excellent. Number two, I'd say I think it's important for us to push forward with digital health solutions that really focuses on the whole person versus and you're seeing air quotes here. So if I was <laughs> with you in the studio, Justin, it would be air quotes, just the patient, right? right yep. So it's not just the patient anymore. It really is the whole person. So I, you know, I really buy into this notion of person-centered care versus patient-centered care. So not to say that patient-centered care isn't important. Obviously, it's very important. But let's push forward with digital health solutions that really focuses on the whole person versus just the patient. And then thirdly, I'd say... Um, you know, we're, 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 we will see massive advancements uh, at this intersection of uh, big data and big pharma. And I think that's going to be really important. It's a space that I think we need to continue to not just indulge in, but, but really watch and, 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 and understand what the right economic models might be, what the right uh, plays might be for capabilities like AI and analytics, uh, cloud, right? This uh, you know, perfect intersection almost of big data and big pharma. We'll see a lot of advancements in that space. Uh, so faster, cheaper, better drug discovery, for example, um, and development. Even as we're in the midst of the, the COVID-19 outbreak here uh, and we're talking about, hey, is it months versus years for the vaccination to come out, right? Um, I, I believe wholeheartedly that when we're able to tap better into that intersection between big data and big pharma, we're going to see a lot um, a lot more advancements come out. And that's a space that uh, I think is really, really exciting as well. So three three things that there I thought I'd share with your audience. Sure. So and I know this is tough, this next question, because we have a lot before us and we still have a lot to achieve in the next year or two. But looking out um, at some key trends or just uh, things to keep an eye on, and you may have just covered it there in your close, but you know, in three to five years from now, where do you think we should have an eye on or just to, to know what's ahead of us? Anything there? Yeah, so... Uh, so a lot of it was what I mentioned, but if I, if I could distill it down to a, a specific thing that we should, I think, be aware of, it, it, is, it is essentially us leveraging data uh, and, and, and coming up with insights in ways that we'd not managed to do so before. And in a nutshell, I, I call that being hyper-aware. Mm-hmm. Right? Becoming hyper-aware, I think, is, is, um, is, is something that's going to be the reality of where healthcare will be in the next three to four years. I mean, three years is a long time. Yes. When you think about the pace of change that we're seeing uh, today, I, I think, you know, in the next three years, we're going to see the amount of change that we've seen in the last, I'd say, five to 10 years, right? So 
becoming hyper aware where you know we're seeing real digital transformation where we're seeing algorithms, intelligent visualizations, smart user interfaces, allowing for us to be hyper aware of ourselves, of the populations that we belong to, the conditions that we live in, the preferences that we have, the economic capabilities that we may have as an individual or as a, as a, as a, as a group, and then helping us through that hyper awareness make more informed decisions and execute uh, and nudge behavior in the right way, the most impactful ways forward. Yeah, I think that's great. And, and if anybody's ever seen some of your social media out there, you know, we also know self-awareness is a critical step in that direction. And you're, you're, uh, you currently um, discuss that and speak about that. And I think that's an important concept of, of being hyper-aware, just being self-aware as a starting point. Would you agree? Absolutely. I think, I th- I think it is so important for us to this, especially in this, busy world, you yes. know, the busyness of the business that we do. It is so important for us to just to pause and reflect and be self-aware. And that is, that is such a critical element of being hyper-aware. Yeah. Excellent. And, and just one closing piece. I know we weren't going to speak about it, but I, I do want my listeners to check out. I think there's a couple of uh, posts out there where, you've, where it's highlighted your concept around unlearning. I think it's really important as we, to be able to run faster. Sometimes we have to undo things and, and undo our own barriers in our head or undo silos that we've created. Um, but the whole concept of unlearning, you're an expert on it. You've helped kind of coin that term, at least in my world. And I'd certainly point my listeners uh, to yeah. any talks that you've ever done on that. But any couple of 30 seconds of words you want to see on unlearning or Sue? Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think, you know, we go to whether it's conferences like HIMSS or, you know, what's next that's going to, you know, uh, go down the way of, of HIMSS by, by canceling the, the conferences itself. South by Southwest, maybe the Health Evolution Summit, we'll see, right? Um, we go to these conferences and these uh, groups, even even this, uh, this radio show that we're having today to learn. And I think it's important as much as we learn for us to actively unlearn as well, right? For us to let go of older paradigms that maybe haven't worked as well, maybe haven't produced as many results. And, and when we unlearn actively, we're able to create space for us to actually take those newer concepts, those newer frameworks, those maybe different ways of looking at older problems that we've been trying to tackle forever now and, and get to newer results. So it is as important for us to unlearn as it is for us to learn. Fantastic. Agree. Rasu, you're always an amazing guest. Again, I truly appreciate you uh, reprioritizing this in your day and making the show happen. Without you, uh, we could not have done it. So thank you again, my friend. Thanks, Justin. You got it. Have a great afternoon, my friend. Take care. Thanks. Yep. Well. Thank you. All right. And my next guest is President Mayo Clinic Platform, Dr. John Halamka, as well as author Paul Serrato. Gentlemen, are you there? Yep, I'm we are indeed. Yep, Excellent. Thank you. Welcome back to the show. Sure, my pleasure. So I and must it's great to listen to my friends Anish and Rasu. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Thank you, John. But and I'm going to take uh, point of privilege here, just because I would love for you to give a, a 10 second plug of where you're calling in from. I hope you're calling in from Unity Farm Sanctuary, John. Uh, I, in fact, am at Unity Farm Sanctuary, though tomorrow I'll be heading to Mayo Clinic Jacksonville, because I did promise my Florida colleagues that I'd spend several days with them. (laughs) Cancellation with him has just required us to be agile. Excellent. Well, we, I love what you, I'm just, uh, I'm part of that community. I love what you do there, your generosity, your giving back. Um, but obviously your, the show today is about your leadership in the industry. Um, but, uh, but I, I always, I love the unity farm sanctuary. So I always like to bring it up as you know, so. but, um, 
Thank you. So, John and Paul, uh, and jo- I, Paul, assume you're calling in from upstate New York as usual? Yes, yes, from my home office in Warwick, New York. Excellent, excellent. So let's start off with um, just what trends to follow the the, uh, the show here. What health IT trends are you guys seeing in the industry? So, uh, John, I'll start off with you, uh, and then Paul would love for you to chime in with yours. Sure. Well, so I joined Mayo Clinic January 1st, and the three major areas that I'm working on are, first, how do you take large amounts of data from the past and use it to inspire new cures and optimal care plans for patients in the future. Do that in an ethical way. That's a privacy protecting way and a way that's scalable and allows you to participate with multiple constituents, payers, providers, patients, pharma, all learning together. The second area is how do I take a high acuity patient and care for them in a non-traditional setting Mm -hmm. in your home? And as we think about lowering costs, as we think about COVID-19, mm-hmm. we're going to have to start delivering care in places other than bricks and mortar. And finally, how do we take the novel signals we're getting from your wearables in your home and turn those into wisdom with AI algorithms that bring you value? Because right now you're wearing things, but who's looking at the data <laughs> and what can you do with it? Oh, I just got a hashtag in there. Wearables wisdom. I love that, John. That's great. <laughs> Perfect. Paul, what are some of your thoughts and trends that you're seeing, my friend? You know, it's funny. John and I have been working together for so many years that we're starting to finish one another's sentences, as he has said before. And when he mentioned, you know, the talk about moving from brick and mortar to uh, virtual care, that was on my list. Um, It's happening, and we've got to be prepared for it. And uh, the the two major buckets are telemedicine, and uh, hospital at home, those are the two movements that, that, that have the most traction. And as, as John mentioned, with the coronavirus being such a big issue, they say, to say tele- telemedicine is, is certainly one of the ways to, to address that problem. But in order to make that doable, we have to have a better understanding of what type of remote patient re- monitoring uh, systems work and which ones don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think if there's a positive that can come out of all this right now um, with what's happening across the country and across our world as they open the show with as well, is that um, we are going to start to hyperspeed. Uh, I think the, the promise of telehealth, the reimbursement for telehealth, virtual care, remote patient monitoring, just remote care in general, uh, and platforms around that. I mean, we've all known, we've been in this industry for a long time in the forefront of it. We know what they, it can do for us. We know its efficacy. Uh, in, in many cases, there are always many use cases, uh, but we've been very slow, I, I think, to uh, um, support it properly uh, in different uh, care strategies and, and care settings. But I think now it's going to be moved to the forefront. We see what North Carolina is doing. They've started reimbursing um, basically full fare as of uh, Monday uh, for visits, you know, whether you're in office or virtual care, certainly, you know, via telehealth. So I think that we're going to see, see more of that. So if something positive can come out of all of this, it's certainly moving all of these uh, technology innovations to the forefront. But absolutely, what best practices um, or strategies can you guys help share to for us to navigate those trends from your individual perspective? So, so Paul, I'll start off with you. What are some of the things that you okay. would share there? And some I, I think, as I just mentioned earlier, we have to distinguish between what remote patient monitoring systems really work and which ones that don't have much support or, or just are silly and useless. I mean, you take things like glucose monitors. Obviously, they've been in, in use for a long time and they're effective. Just recently, uh, the FDA approved a uh, glucose monitor that does not require finger pricking, which is a major problem for a lot of patients. Mm-hmm. So there's a little uh, 
monitor that, that people put under their skin, and then all you have to do is put the glucose meter right next to the the uh, meter, the, the monitor, and, and it tells you how uh, you know, much blood glucose levels are. So that's the type of technology. Yes, we know it works. Let's push forward with it. Where some of the less useful and sometimes silly uh, uh, monitoring systems, uh, one thing, one that comes in mind, uh, I wrote about a couple of years ago, there is a, a, a booty that newborns can wear. So the, the new patients put this little boot on, on, on the child's foot and it monitors their blood pressure, it monitors their heart rate and so on and so forth. Uh, totally useless for some uh, a normal healthy child. And in fact, the American Pediatrics um, Society has come out saying that you're probably doing more harm than good for that kind of patient monitoring. So obviously, we've got to be discriminating when when we use these type of tools. Very, very good point. Totally agree. Uh, John, what would you like to share there, best practices? Uh, Two points. I think Paul is exactly right. We have all these novel sources of telemetry and figuring out the provenance, what devices generate what signals for what utility. But also, we're getting so much data, we're going to overwhelm our clinicians. Mm -hmm. And so the question is, how do we separate signal from noise? And the answer there has to be machine learning used to augment human decision-making so that as we get these terabytes of new signals, the humans get engaged when there's something material to review and figuring out how to build platforms that ingest the data and connect them to partner companies that do the machine learning processing is a lot of my effort, but also protecting privacy. And that's, of course, a really challenging thing to do as you generate more data for more purposes. And so much of what I've also focused on is how does one de-identify the data? Or let's just say this, lower the re-identification threshold so substantially that the data can flow to multiple parties while also ensuring that patient privacy is respected. That's excellent. So... On that note, and kind of pivoting over to the new interoperability rule, because obviously some of this is covered in there, what would you like to share? I'd love to know what you thought of the rule yesterday, John, and certainly, Paul, if you have anything you want to add. Um, but I'd love to know your thoughts, as we, you know, we'll have Dr. Rucker on at 2 p.m. today, but uh, would love to send me your preview there. Sure. So I think it's, as Anish said, it's cultural and it's ecosystem. It's suddenly, instead of walking into the basement of medical records Monday through Friday, 9 to 5, asking for your medical record and being asked, would you like that single or double-sided, <laughs> right? Exactly. The culture will be, it's an expectation of digital first, and you can't say no. I mean, there are eight exceptions, I get it, right? But I mean, in general, the answer is hospitals and clinics will be offering a digital channel for patients to become stewards of their own data. And that's really a cultural change. That's fantastic. Did you like anything else about the rule? Well, I thought it was extraordinarily accommodating Mm -hmm. to all the players in our environment, right? I mean, we all know there was a lot of controversy about what would the rule require in terms of intellectual property disclosure and fees and all the rest. And I think the folks at ONC work pretty hard with our stakeholders to come up with something that everyone would say is reasonable. Yep. 
I agree. I heard uh, accommodating is one of the terms that I heard last night as a few of us were digesting the day and, and the comments and uh, the, uh, the different calls that we were on. So I completely agree. John or Paul, anything else you want to add to that? Yeah, I've got mixed feelings about this this new rule. Please. I think a year from today we'll be able to answer the question, yes, it does work or no, it doesn't. But um, earlier this morning I looked at the uh, HHS uh, news release about this new rule, and I've been doing this for, you know, working as a medical journalist for about 30 years. And this news release was a lot different than a lot of the others that I read because it spent the first three or four paragraphs and it looked more like a political campaign <laughs> release <laughs> than a, an, an explanation about how the rule works. So I, I don't know how much of this is political grandstanding and how much of this is actually going to benefit patients down the road. So we'll see. Well, I think the ONC has been so, I think, just battered from all sides. So I think they almost had to put a statement like this together um, yeah. to kind of pacify everybody to the best of their ability, knowing they probably couldn't, but they had to at least give it a shot. That's that's my take on it, because I agree yeah, with you're you. Pro- you're probably right. Yeah. Um, they are they are a very nonpartisan group, uh, in my mm-hmm. opinion, uh, but they have a lot of politics to navigate. Let's just say that. So, sure. Um, John, I know my audience would love to hear more about your new role as president of Mayo Clinic Platform. What would you like to share regarding that, your new post? Sure. So Mayo Clinic has enormous talent and reputation. And the question is, how can you share that broadly with a world that, as we know from COVID-19, is shrinking every day? Mm. And the idea is, can you take the AI algorithms that have been developed by Mayo Clinic experts or the content or care plans and make that broadly available through a variety of channels? so that there can be much more extended benefit. And platform is really that. It's how do you connect producers of innovation with consumers of innovation and do it to very large scale with very low friction. And so my challenge, of course, is in 2020, I'm expected to have a series of major go lives once a quarter. And so I would tell you, this is probably a, a, a bit of a sprint but it's also a marathon. So am I sprinting a marathon? All I can tell you is it brings me joy every day. And that's what's important. I love it. It's uh, very optimistic. It's great. I've read your, uh, what your go live plan is. So it's, um, it's impressive. It's monumental. And we obviously look forward to, uh, watching the journey. So, um, and thank you for, again for, I know you got a busy schedule for joining us. Do you want to join in? You got a question here? Monica? John, this is Roberta from healthcare now radio. Just want to know if your Boston marathon is going to go on this year. Oh, good question. I read that this morning. Wow. Do you know? You know, if they've, if they've canceled the St. Patrick's Day parade, doesn't that, isn't that a harbinger? I don't know. I have no inside information. <laughs> All right. Yeah, that's right. actually a great, great question. Neither does the uh, Atlanta Journal have much <laughs> to say about ours. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, but I think what you could say this is that we are seeing the um, catchwords abundance of caution. Yes. Being Correct. used in virtually every public event. So uh, I take that to probably mean public events of that magnitude will be canceled. Yep. Yep. I tend to agree. Um, so I think looking over, um, you know, closing out there with Mayo a little bit, what uh, three, I think, uh, would be a couple initiatives, AI or machine learning, artificial intelligence, machine learning initiatives that Mayo is launching this year, John, or that you plan to launch over the next year or so? Right. So the first 
which uh, we just finished the comprehensive de-identification of 9 million historical records. And we'll be moving those into a secure container where we can invite innovators into the secure container to run AI algorithms. That is, the data will never leave our control. It's fully de-identified and certified as de-identified, but we can invite innovators in. And I think that's a really interesting model. And so you'll start seeing the first invitations, if you will, happening in April and May of this year. Going live with Home Hospital. And to the comments Paul made, uh, we believe that it's going to be increasingly important in society to have this capability. And we, our first home hospital uh, go live is in Florida in July, our second in Northwest Wisconsin in August. We're trying just two totally different geographies, supply chains, reimbursement mechanisms and ecosystems. And we'll learn a great deal uh, as to how this can scale. And then I am increasingly working on connecting the devices, the kind of things that Paul described to algorithms And by the end of the year, you should start to see some of those algorithms applied to some of the devices we're wearing today. Wow. That's amazing. All the best there. That's that's phenomenal. I did not know about the home hospital. So terrific. So let's pivot now to your new book um, that you that you guys co-authored, Reinventing Clinical Decision Support. So let's talk about um, uh, Paul, why don't you start off here? You know, the, the promise of AI, the book talks about the promise of AI and machine learning and helping docs make better clinical decisions. But what are some of the barriers and limitations of these new tools? Probably the two most important at, two that we were going to talk about at the HIMSS conference were resistance from clinicians and uh, the relative lack of uh, scientific evidence to support some of these tools. Uh, resistance, we've, we've spoken about that often. Uh, Part of the resistance comes from not understanding the complex data science behind some of these uh, AI tools. And one easy way to address that is better education. Uh, we were planning to give a presentation where we, we showed a video of how uh, convolutional neural networks work. And then I also had a video to show how random forest modeling works. Those are two foundational stones used to... to uh, do machine learning and AI. So um, education is, is one of the first steps, which, by the way, if any of your listeners are interested in those videos, uh, they can email me and I can send it to them directly. I'm at serato at AOL.com. And then the second issue, lack of relative lack of evidence. Um, there are thousands of scientific papers out there about machine learning and, and AI as it applies to, uh, to healthcare. Uh, but most of them are proof-of-concept papers or re- uh, retrospective studies. That's really not the kind of high-level research that we need in order to put this into daily practice and risk patients' you know, health. Um, so one of the things that I had planned to hand out at the uh, conference was a list of about 10 or 15 st- uh, studies, randomized controlled trials, prospective trials that show the, the strongest amount of evidence certain categories of machine learning. So once again, anybody interested in that handout, serato at AOL.com. I'll be happy to send it to them. Yeah, and we also broadcast a show, had you both on a couple weeks ago, so they can also go check out your radio show, This Justin Radio. There, there's all my shows listed. You guys are just a few weeks ago, and that's a phenomenal show. We actually did a double episode, so almost an hour 
just focused primarily on reinventing clinical assistance support in this new book. It's fascinating. So this is just a real kind of, we're just touching on it today, but we did an in-depth double episode um, a couple weeks ago. So everybody can certainly check that out and look, uh, look Paul up there. So John, what else would you like to add to that? I mean, how can we make, um, you know, docs make better clinical decisions in that regard and some of the barriers? A couple of thoughts. Um, Justin, you have been interviewing many, many people. How many clinicians have told you how much they love their EHR <laughs> regarding a brand or vendor? None. None. <laughs> yeah, well, and so, yes, those tools are fit for, for purpose. I mean, sure. in the sense that they're required by regulation and there are certain compliance issues. So I get that. Right. But most right. clinicians would say on the whole, this is a burden. It isn't a tool I look forward to using every day. So to right. Paul's point... If you bring those validated algorithms and workflow enhancements into the EHR, as an external product, it's sitting within the framework of the EHR that reduces the time spent, reduces the administrative burden, brings more confidence in decision-making. The hope is you can restore some of the joy in practice. And I was recently visiting a large software company somewhere in Wisconsin. Can't imagine which one. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and the senior leadership embraces that idea yes. of taking everything that's in the book and making it through fire CDS hooks available within the workflow of the EHR to enhance the usefulness of the EHR, recognizing it will take a village of third parties to do so. Fantastic. Yeah. And we're all supportive of what electronic health records can do, should do, um, and need to do. So for the record, we're highly supportive because they're essential functions and, and infrastructures to our healthcare system. Would you agree with that, John? There is no question that EHRs are needed, but my hope is they become a bit more of a back office function. Yeah. And that is ambient listening technologies and some of these AI tools we've been talking about become more what the doctors and nurses are interacting with every day. Completely agree. Excellent. And our remaining 30 seconds, I guess, what would you um, say we should be looking on the horizon for AI and machine learning living up to its potential? What do we need to do? John, you want to take that? Yeah. Okay. Uh, So we talk a lot about how the healthcare system is broken and fragmented, but frankly, AI to a large extent is fragmented as well. So many providers are only using one aspect of AI, like the predictive analytics aspect, but what we really need is an integrated approach, which includes predictive analytics, prescriptive analytics, and AI that helps with patient uh, engagement. So you have the entire universe from soup to nuts, as they say. Excellent. Fascinating. Gentlemen, Paul Serrato, Dr. John Holomka, you guys both are amazing guests, great supporters of the show, and thank you so much for joining us today. Have a great afternoon, my friends. Thank you, Tristan. Thank you so much. Thank you. I believe we have Dr. Karen DeSalvo, Chief Health Officer from Google. Welcome back to the show, Karen. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. You got it. Thank you. Thank you. Hopefully those are some uh, familiar voices you just heard as well. Yes. (laughs) Phenomenal. So first of all, congratulations on your new post. We would look forward to, uh, I mean, I'd love to take 30 seconds. Uh, John just described his new post as president of Mayo Clinic Mm -hmm. Platform, but would you like to take 30 seconds to kind of let my audience um, hear about, you know, what you plan to achieve or, you know, as a new chief health officer for Google? Yeah, you know, well, Google 
has um, has entered into um, an endeavor to see if we can leverage the tools and capabilities of our company in areas like artificial intelligence and computer vision, uh, but also organizing a complex information and making it uh, accessible and useful to uh, applying it to the health sphere. And, and our mission in the health work is to give more life to everyone every day. So it's broad. It's more than just um, what we can do in the healthcare environment, but really thinking also about upstream and, and global opportunities to really focus on quality of life and putting consumers much more in charge, not only of their own information, but of kind of the actions that they can take. And Give you an example of something that the teams worked on, which is in the area of um, of, of applying computer vision and, and machine learning to reading um, mammography, so that um, we can uh, uh, not only do a better job of identifying um, cancer where there might be cancer in mammography, but reducing false positives as well. And and um, in places like the UK, where they need uh, secondary readers for every mammography shorten the timeline to when a woman's going to get the results of her mammogram test. So it's a, a win on the accuracy of the, of the test um, based upon the, the results that we published back in January, but also a win for uh, the consumer or the, the patient who gets their, their test results earlier. So that's an example of how we're trying to improve the efficiency and effectiveness of the current system. But we're also doing a lot in our platforms around search and YouTube to improve authoritative content that people get. And it's an exciting place. Uh, lots of people come into us every day with health questions, and we look forward to partnering with others to, to see what we can do to improve health. I love it. Congratulations. Phenomenal. So, Roberta, you want to ask a question? Yes, I do. Karen, this is Roberta from Healthcare Now Radio. I'm wondering, you've been in the government, you've been in provider, you're a doctor. Public um, health. Yeah. Uh, public health, all, all that stuff. Tell us what the culture change is going to big corporation. You know, um, first of all, I came to Google because this is a place that puts community first. It's all about the user here. And, um, you know, you never know till you step into a company how much what you believe or are told is real, but it's real. And, you know, when I, when I left public service at the federal level and before that, I was the health commissioner in New Orleans. One of the things I loved about those jobs was that you're really able to put the community first. So the, culturally, it's been really great. Um, I think what else has been amazing is the level of talent in the company that um, wants to, to put our tools to good and the freedom we've been given to, to really think about how to do this in a way that is really driven by partnership. And uh, so it's not so much about replacing or disrupting negatively, but sort of figuring out how improve the system. Improve the system. Excellent. So you're liking it. It's great. I love it. I great. really do. And, and maybe I'm still in my honeymoon phase, but uh, it's really been, and it's it's a tremendous platform. And the global nature of it is is also what's really exciting. I mean, you think about the opportunity we have from a public health lens to provide better information through our our services like search and and YouTube. We have, for example, um, been working for a while with the CDC um, so that when people search on diabetes, they can go to a CDC developed screener that gives them their sense of their own risk and then and then uh, pushes them to a CDC list of accredited diabetes prevention programs. That's an example of how we can do sort of the search to action work um, that, that puts the consumer more in the driver's seat 
there's an awful lot more we'd like to do to help them have better insights into their own health information, uh, et cetera. And so I, I think um, it's really we're being as responsive as we can to what consumers are interested in. And um, that, that, by the way, is one of the things I'm, I've been starting to do since I was health a chief health officer here is some listening sessions to hear directly from our users, consumers, doctors, others, about what are the ways that we can be more helpful in their, in their daily lives. That's fantastic. So, Karen, what, uh, and just on the flow of the show, what healthcare, health IT trends are you seeing in the industry from your perspective, from Google, from you personally? I know you just covered a bunch uh, as we opened, but what else would you like to share there? Well, you know, one of the reasons I came here is because I, I've always believed that the consumer should be at the center and increasingly believe they should be a lot more in control. And I don't think that's true just in a U.S. context, mm-hmm. but I think globally. And the uh, policy work that we did as national court, when I was national coordinator, um, you know, we wrote a new strategic plan that put the person at the center, wrapping the data around them. And as John was saying earlier, the EHR is but one of many data sources that tell us about someone's health and quality of life. So starting to shift that paradigm and that power so that the consumer really is more um, at the center of that. Uh, this, this whole movement towards figuring out how to assemble data that tells a broader story about somebody's health and quality of life, including like social drivers of health or behavioral um, drivers of health and doing that in a way that their health information is accessible and useful to them and those they trust is the trend that everyone's trying to figure out how to meet that expectation from from consumers and do it in a way that is really um, uh, secure and private but useful to the consumer um, uh, over time. And I, I just want to call out, because I know Don's coming up, coming up next, yeah. how delighted I am uh, to see this next step of the rulemaking on the part of HHS which builds on work that um, we did when I was the national coordinator around the 2015 edition and working with Congress on the 21st century cures. And it's, it, I think the fact that the HHS, that FEMA and Don have really pushed forward this next iteration should be a clear signal to the industry um, and to consumers that, that health IT is not partisan. It's really about doing the right thing for their health and so that the um, industry always ought to have some, some clarity that the policy is moving in more of a consumer-centric direction. We need to build tools and businesses that are B2C, very consumer-centric, and be thinking about building an industry that that allows for cost and quality transparency and people to be able to take access. Look, I, I have worked in um, communities that are with seniors or communities of color or communities that are uninsured. So I fully, completely understand that was my patient base for 20 years, that, that, that what we have to build has to be culturally and um, health, competent and from a health literacy standpoint. But we really do need to build a future in which it's, the power is not all in the hands of the health system or in the companies that hold the health records, but rather that the power is shifted to those who are really putting the consumer first. That's fantastic. So, I mean, I'll even give you the last, uh, you know, 30 seconds or so, a minute on, I mean, you just obviously gave some praise. You actually helped start a lot of this back in 2015. So I certainly want to publicly thank you for your hard work and dedication through the years. But what would you want to say regarding the interoperability rules that were uh, launched yesterday? You know, in addition to everything that ONC did, I think what CMS has signaled in, in two important areas, one around the conditions of participation 
expectations around interoperability, that is a clear shift away from meaningful use as the driver of interoperability, but just to saying it's the 21st century and, and health systems need to be interoperable. I think there's another clear shift of expecting the health plans to aggregate longitudinal health records, which is a signal that that trusted third parties could be a health plan. You know, um, tech companies have already been in this space, but there, there will be ways that people want to have their health data aggregated so it's one person, one record across their lifespan, and, and that, that the, the companies that do this, this by giving people um, digital dignity mm-hmm. uh, are going to be the companies that, that really help, um, that, that really I think are successful. So it's really thinking about putting the consumer in the driver's seat and doing it in a way that, that gives them um, visibility into their data so they can put it um, where they uh, they can share it with those that they want to, when they want to, and it has to be people that they'll trust. And by the way, I want to give a Grace Cordovano credit for that digital digital dignity term. I, I borrowed that from her um, in one of the listening sessions that I had. And, and it's just such an important concept that coming out of this, this these rules is now 21st century model. Now we've got to figure out how to make sure that we're doing everything we can around privacy, security, and digital dignity for the consumers to make this work in real time. I love it. I actually wrote that down. Digital dignity. I've heard a few um, quote unquote hashtag today. Wearable wisdom, digital, digital dignity. I love it. So who again coined that term, digital dignity, Karen? Grace Cordovano, C-O-R-D-O-V-A-N-O. She's a, a oh, yes. advocate. Yep. I know Grace. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, Dr. DeSalvo, I truly appreciate you, time, you taking the time out of your busy schedule to join us. I know you have a lot going on. I'm sorry we did not get to see each other in person at HIMSS, but, um, but thank you again for showing up today and being part of our show. You're amazing. Thank you. Wash your hands for 20 seconds. Uh, I have, and I have hand sanitizer. Yes, I will. 20 seconds, and I do have hand sanitizer in front of me. The studio had it on my computer when I walked in the door. So, And we're going to check right. in, in in one year when your honeymoon's over. <laughs> to see the, the, Sounds good. the private Thank you, guys. See you next year. Thank you. All right. Stone? Yes, have? sir. Yeah, you got, you got your HHS purse. I think you got Don. Excellent. Dr. Don Rucker from the ONC National yes. Coordinator. Excellent. Welcome to the show, yes. my friend. Welcome back to the show, I should say. Excellent. All right. Yeah, no, thanks, Justin. You got it. I appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule. Obviously, you have a lot going on, probably more than anybody else, well, except for the CDC right now, maybe, um, going on with uh, with what you uh, released yesterday and your team. So we're grateful for you joining us today. You have a great audience here of listeners. So I would, uh, first of all, I'd like to offer you the floor. I mean, I know you have some, uh, some great points that you want to share. You did a great job. You and your team did a great job yesterday. I'm um, just setting the industry up, doing your call, sharing some of the outlines, but I'd love to offer you the floor, um, for you to, uh, to share some, some of your insights right now. Um, yeah, no, thank you. Uh, thank you. Um, first I'd like to, um, thank Karen and team because, um, obviously as Karen pointed out, the, uh, the journey on interoperability has been a, a multi-year, almost an entire generation when you go back. I was talking with David Brailler yesterday, yes. uh, 2004, um, when, you know, uh, the Office of the National Coordinator started. Yeah. Framework so for action, yeah. Yep. Um, a long journey here um, to, to get that. I think the rule that we put out, uh, the 21st Century Cures Act rule, is, is a major milestone. I think it reflects a couple big things. It reflects that while we've had, I think for a couple of years, the the bandwidth, the amount of electronic, now finally health information to actually have something to share. Um, you know, we have not had the policy incentives 
because all of the policy incentives that we've put over into American healthcare, literally since 1942 Stabilization Act during World War II that made um, health insurance a pretext benefit have um, put us um, where health care is under the control of third parties, as opposed to being a direct conversation with a patient consumer and a provider, you know, doctor hospital, it has been a, a three-party conversation. And that, um, you know, conversation, because the economics are really under the control of everybody but the patient consumer has been an increasingly expensive, increasingly unhappy yes. um, situation. The Cures Act says, wait a minute, let's put some provisions in place that combined with modern computing will put the patients back in charge. And those provisions at top level, there are two big provisions. Um, technically, it says that the application programming interfaces, if you will, have to be allowed to work. They can't be hidden by, you know, contractual blocking um, or, you know, all the sneaky ways that you can mm-hmm. sort of look like you're you're doing something but aren't. Yes. So they have to be real bona fide interfaces. On the one hand, Congress termed it APIs without special effort. And on the other hand, the information has to be shared for patients. Um, the days when you can say, well, um, we're not really going to share the information because they're not in our network, or maybe even um, we'll share the information on a private network of, you know, where maybe the other members on that network are also high priced and also not really offering competitive solutions. Um, Congress said those days are over, that patient controls where that information flows. Um, our role um, makes that law um, you know, puts that the law into effect. Um, it happens over a couple of year uh, time frame. Uh, you have Steve Posnack on soon, I believe, to yes. talk about the details. But um, anyway, that's the top level. We're very excited, as as Karen mentioned. We think this will be um, one of those things we look back on as an absolute game changer in getting the American public back in the control of healthcare. And certainly, um, I think as everyone knows, President Trump strongly believes that the American public should have the ability to shop for their healthcare. Yes. Yes. So what, um, what are some of the major takeaways for providers, do you feel, from this, uh, from this rule? Well, I think there's a couple big takeaways for providers. I think, first of all, um, you know, there's a lot of brouhaha about the role, obviously a lot of lobbying, um, a lot of business models that need to get rethought. Um, and, you know, maybe this is a forcing function for business models, mm-hmm. especially the non-transparent business models yeah. that have to be rethought. But ultimately, what is required of providers? What's required of providers is an unattended endpoint to their EMR secured by security provisions that I think Steve will tell you about in great detail. Um, but it's a, it's a pretty straightforward thing. You basically have a server on the internet is ultimately what this is. Um, so unlike some of the prior rules where all kinds of physician and hospital behaviors had to change, which is quite hard to do, right. this is really taking the data, 
you already have that's already form will already be formatted and making that available on a secure API to the public, which means you hook up a computer to the internet that has an API. Um, the that's the the mechanics of providers. What um, I think it really means is that providers can start thinking about a new world, a big data world, about having new insights into what they do, new control over their data. We've heard from some of the most sophisticated providers in America that um, they don't even have control of their data. Um, they don't even have effective access to their data to do what they want. Um, we think that's going to be powerful as a practical matter, having these APIs will mean that a lot of the huge burdens that um, are, are forced on providers with our dysfunctional payment system can start going away, right? If payers can get the data and really see what providers are doing, we can really think about eliminating all this um, faked up documentation right. for, you know, to get a higher CPT code. Um, we can, if we have all of the data, we can basically think about stop playing the quality measure game, right? The quality measure game is because we have no other way of evaluating value. That's why we started doing this 20 years ago, roughly. Right. Um, now, with these APIs, you're going to have many ways of evaluating value. Um, another payment game that will just, I think, over time, melt away with data is the whole prior off business. So these are huge burdens on providers that just destroy the provider quality of life. You know, horrible terms like pajama time. <laughs> um, and these APIs are the pathway to make this kind of hand-entered, manually curated, no value add data, you know, data entry, this clerical work basically melt away. It's going to be great for providers, I believe, over time. It will, however, force them to think about transparency and customer service in a new way. It's fantastic. Uh, Roberta, you have a quick question? Yeah, I do. Um, this is Roberta from Healthcare Now Radio. Hi, Don. Um, so Hi. you brought up Brailler. I was reading um, about that the other day. And 2014, mission, one of the missions of ONC has always been patient access. This is like a decade and a half later. This rule that um, came out, right? Yeah. Uh, this rule that came out, what do you think? Mission accomplished or one small step? Um, well, um, without getting into the history of the phrase you've cited in uh, American political dialogue. <laughs> right. Uh, they're, both, they're both very famous. Uh, so without one small getting step. into that, um, I think it, um, you know, more concretely, um, I think what it says is in a world where we have not economically empowered the consumer, right, in our business models, the healthcare, though that's changing, high deductibles, employers are shifting more and more of the costs back on on consumers. Even, you know, Medicare puts lots of costs on their patients um, when you get right down to it. Right. As we are shifting these costs back to the American public to get some control of the costs, we are fundamentally giving the public um, an entree into modern tools to um, make those decisions, both in terms of choice um, of what to do and then 
how to shop for what you've decided to do. Uh, so I think um, it has been the, the missing ingredient here. I think it's going to be very powerful. Excellent. A giant step forward. Yeah, no, excellent. Dr. Rucker, thank you very much. I know you have a busy day and a busy afternoon, so we certainly appreciate you joining the show today. And um, thank you for everything you do. We appreciate it greatly. Oh, no, thank you. Great great talking with you guys. Sorry we couldn't do it in Orlando. <laughs> you got it. This is the second best, though. We Again, we're grateful. Thank you. And I think Stephen yep. Posnack is on the line, Deputy National Coordinator. You, you got it. Excellent, my friend. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm sure it's Good. been. Can you hear me, Phil? I can. I'm sure it's been a crazy. Uh, I can't imagine what you're going through. Never mind all of us just kind of scrambling. You've had to not only scramble, but you've had to do a lot of work over the last six to twelve months to five years, <laughs> so to get us here. Uh, yeah, those are all all appropriate units of measure. <laughs> exactly. Um, so uh, first of all, thank you, my friend, for taking time out of your busy day to uh, to join us. So we'll kind of dive right in. Uh, dive right in. I'd like to actually give you kind of the floor and let you hit on some of your high points. I just have a, we'll have a couple of follow up questions, but I really know there's some real important pieces that you want to get out to a large audience today. So I'll kind of give you the floor and some of your high points from the new rule. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And just to follow on to Dr. Rucker's remarks, um, you know. Unlike the other rules that we've worked on in the past, um, you know, this one is, is both larger, obvious statement, but also has a much more transformative impact that, that um, we feel will make to the entire healthcare industry as a whole, uh, both to enable patient access, but also to give providers better choices in terms of how they uh, use the technology that they have available to them. Uh, one thing I wanted to be clear, which is certainly one thing that got brought up uh, as part of the rulemaking process was uh, stakeholders' request for more time to understand and comply with the rules. Obviously, information blocking is a, a new uh, legal and regulatory paradigm. And so what we did was to uh, uh, allow for more time for education and preparation in the beginning. So for the first six months, uh, there are no compliance requirements uh, up front, to just say that colloquially. And then uh, over time, there's a, a gradual phase-in for the information blocking scope and uh, obligations overall on industry stakeholders. So we hope that that will give a, a, a gradual way for everyone to come, in compliance, come into compliance with the rules and, um, you know, answers a lot of the, the concerns about, um, you know, having the supply come day one when the rules become effective. Uh, similarly, on the certification program side, and that's probably the other important point to make, is that uh, our rule is really two rules in one. Uh, a, a portion that applies to health IT developers only in terms of updates to our certification program. And then a portion that applies to health IT developers, health information exchanges and health information networks and healthcare providers, which is the information blocking related provisions. So when it comes to changes to our certification program, again, only applicable to certified health IT developers. There are a number of changes there, uh, some of which, you know, as we uh, visited last time I was on, uh, and as, as Dr. Rucker mentioned, um, relate to benefits that will ultimately accrue to healthcare providers and getting more confidence and assurance in their products. Congress required that Congress required that real world testing be performed of those products. And that's one of the things that we've uh, subsequently included in that final rule as well. Um, so happy to, to turn it over to you ask uh, any more questions. Sure. So I think the biggest thing, and you guys did a great job with your infographics. I will commend the office. You guys do a great job sharing very complex information as simply as possibly. So certainly I'll encourage my audience to go out there and look at your website. You, first of all, go give us your URL really quick, uh, the short and sweet one for um, the website or these key time. Yeah, absolutely. So healthit.gov will always get you to the right place, uh, but it's, it's slash cures rule. 
is the uh, the, the extra to add on to health at he.gov. Yep. And if you're on Twitter, it's hashtag ONC Cures Rule. Oh, Cures um, Rule ONC. Yeah, Cures Rule ONC. Perfect. <laughs> Cures Rule ONC. Yeah. So that's right. In the, in the beauty of picking picking out what hashtag to, to do, we, we noticed that there would be two C's uh, if we did it in a certain way. So we we put our name we put our name last. Excellent. Very well, smart. You are you are up on the Twitter. <laughs> yes, he is. So. Yes, that is that is true. <laughs> did a great job. So, what are some of the key timelines there that you want to share specifically, Steve, with my audience and our audience today? Yeah, absolutely. And and there is uh, one of those fact sheets that you mentioned that lays out a, a highlighted version of some of the milestones. So, um, you know, first and foremost, I'll stay with information blocking because that one's uh, a bit simpler yep. uh, from a timeline perspective. You have the first six-month period, which is when uh, compliance with information blocking would be set to begin. Between month six and month 24, the only data that all of the what we call covered actors are responsible for uh, not information blocking is uh, the U.S. core data for interoperability, which is that new standard that we adopted a new core data set. Uh, And that's how we helped to create this kind of gradual and incremental approach for uh, stakeholders to adjust to the rules over time. Uh, So between month six and month 24, only the U.S. CDI is in scope from an information blocking perspective. And then at at year two and beyond, that's when the full scope of, as we've defined, quote unquote, electronic health information uh, is in place. And that's really, to to say it no more simply than that, that's Mm -hmm. how information blocking lines up from a timing perspective. When it comes to certification, uh, some of those rules become uh, effective 60 days after the rule is published. And uh, one bit of clarification I can note here, even though we released the rules publicly uh, yesterday, they are not officially published in the Federal Register yet in that tri-column format. So everyone has a bit of a warm-up and stretching period uh, before the official start date uh, and starting line uh, is laid out. And that'll be when the rules are are published in that tri-column format from the Federal Register. so when it comes to health IT developers, they've got a number of different timelines along the way, but the, the one that I'll emphasize most will be uh, that two-year milestone where, uh, just like with information blocking, um, the U.S. core data for interoperability, uh, that standard has been updated into a number of different certification criteria, including uh, the new secure standards-based API uh, certification criterion that Dr. Rucker mentioned, and um, that will be need. Healthcare, health IT developers will need to roll those out products certified to that criterion uh, to their provider customers within that two-year period of time. So in very short order, uh, in the grand scheme of things, uh, all of us as patients will, uh, you know, be able to use, you know, smartphone apps to uh, connect to these uh, standardized and, and certified APIs. Excellent. Did you have a follow-up question, Roberta? I did, Steve. Uh, tell us a little bit about the, the industry in itself. You've been... You've been- putting this out for a year now, the proposed rules have come out and everything. What do you think the vendors, are they prepared? How prepared are they to actually doing the integration of apps? Yeah, so um, it's a perfect question. I think preparation is, it always goes on a spectrum. Um, they, we've looked at some numbers and certainly have done some uh, data briefs and blog posts in the past about uh, industry adoption of fire. Uh, and that was, you know, with regard to the release two, which is the Argonaut version original. Uh, many of those health IT developers, which, uh, you know, you look at the data, occupy a uh, large provider market share. Uh, many of those health IT developers have been in motion and moving toward Fire Release 4, which is what we adopted in the final rule as the, as the sole 
uh, kind of API-based uh, standard. Um, so from that perspective, they've been, I think, well, relatively well prepared to move in that direction. There are a few other areas where we gave them more time uh, to make adjustments relative to our certification requirements. The, I think the biggest adjustment for them overall is, is looking at their processes, uh, looking at some of the business arrangements uh, that <clears throat> may be different or may need to be adjusted as they start to go through the conditions of certification and the, con and the changes that Congress directed us to make to our certification program. And I think you know, some that have been tracking along with our regulation uh, from the proposal stage, uh, even dating back to you know, the Health IT Advisory Committee, uh, and other other comments that we received should be well positioned to comply with our rules in in, um, in, in I don't want to say short order, but along along the timeline that we've laid out. And uh, as you mentioned, for the infographics and other fact sheets that we've put together, uh, that's our attempt to get everybody else up to speed as quickly as possible. Yeah, you did. A, you, did you guys did a great job. I went through a lot of that yesterday. I sat in as many calls as I could, and um, I think just some of the feedback that I've been getting from the industry, it's very accommodating. And so I think you guys have done a phenomenal job uh, handling a very difficult and, and, and um, tough piece of legislation. So phenomenal job, Steve and team. Mm -hmm. And uh, audience, follow him on Twitter. Yes. Great I insight. It, I say it all the time. <laughs> yes, you do. Uh, yes, you do. Come, come for the policy, stay for the gift, right? That's right. <laughs> I believe he calls fire muy caliente. That's his newest that's one. Right. That's right. That's right. Uh, my Spanish teacher would be proud. <laughs> Awesome. Steve, always a great guest. Thank you so much, my friend. I know you have a busy afternoon, so we'll let you go. I believe we have at least Sweeney Anthony joining us now, but, uh, but thanks again, Steve. All the best. All right. A pleasure. Thank you very much. Take care, buddy. Elise, are you on the line? I am. I am. Hello, Justin. Thanks for the invite. Happy to join. You got it. Welcome back to the show. Executive Director, Office of Policy at the ONC. And I know that your schedule, I can't imagine what, you, uh, what you're in the middle of right now. Um, so we're grateful for you and for your time. Thank you. Absolutely. Happy to do it. Happy to do it. Thank you. Um, so I'll kind of open it up. Uh, I, I gave Don and Steve the floor. I know you guys have a lot to, uh, to cover with the audience. We have, we have about 30,000 people in the line, so a great audience out there. The floor is yours, so I'll kind of ask you maybe some follow-up questions, but I'd love if you're going to get a couple of points, significant points across, uh, you can have the floor. So. Sure. Thank you. Um, so I guess I want to start out by saying thank you. You know, we've been working on the final rule for um, <laughs> quite some time, as you can imagine. Yes. Uh, we received more than 2,000 comments submissions on our rule. And that's from across the landscape, from individual individuals to, um, to organizations, to developers, uh, to app developers, just across the landscape. And all of that feedback really helped us to get to where we are now. Um, you know, as I say, you know, we read every single comment. Uh, a lot of people talk about the length of the rule. Um, but of course, one of the things we do is we respond to those comments. So we talk about um, this is what we heard or this is what you asked us about. And here's our response to it. And but altogether, all of those comments really help us to inform the final policy and get to a place where what we're doing not just works um, in terms of what we want to achieve from a policy basis, but also works on the ground on what is needed for patients, providers and the, and the ecosystem as a whole. So I want to start by just saying thankful, thank, thank you in that respect. Um, a couple of things I'll highlight um, is I want to talk a little bit about the information blocking provisions because we've received a, a ton of different comments oh, yes. around how it should be set up or the exceptions that we laid out. And all of that feedback really helped us to come um, to the right place. And we proposed seven exceptions. We actually ended up with eight exceptions. And that last exception on content and manner is really key because it allows an opportunity for 
the health IT user and the developer to engage and to see if they can come uh, to a common place in terms of that electronic health information, as we call it, that needs to move. Um, but we also include, if that doesn't work, a way for that information to move. And we start by looking at standards-based um, mechanisms for that. And our goal overall is to make sure that the information is moving securely and appropriately. And the way we've laid out the information blocking exceptions are designed just to do that. Uh, so that's one place that I would direct folks to. I heard earlier talking about um, the, the website and um, I'm glad it's working for folks. There's definitely mm -hmm. a section in there on information blocking. We'll also be doing a webinar on information blocking. And I know that's the area of keen interest among any. So please do check that out. Yes. So I'll start there, but um, feel free to ask me questions. Sure. So, I mean, let's, um, first of all, do you know the date of that webinar? You use this as a public service announcement right now, if you know yeah, that date. So the first webinar will actually be tomorrow, actually, tomorrow at three. If you go to our website, I think Steve already did the plug, but I'll do it again. HealthID.gov slash Cures Rule. You can um, follow the links to the webinar and you can register for the webinar there. We'll also be doing some additional ones um, next week as well um, on the condition of certification and then on information blocking itself. But the first overview one will be tomorrow. So join us. Excellent. Thank you, Elise. So I guess my first question, um, kind of a big question, but what are some of the major changes from the proposed rule? A lot of us were very familiar with the proposed rule, and now we're scouring through the final rule. But what are the maybe two or three things that you would highlight that we should really know? Well, well, one I would say is, you know, across the rule, we, we took into consideration a lot of the comments we received. Um, just to stay on the information blocking side for a little bit, mm -hmm. uh, we heard a lot about the definitions of health information network and health information exchange. Um, and as, as folks who have been following this closely know, there are actors that Congress has identified under the information blocking section. So in other words, uh, a potential information blocker could be a health information network, a health information exchange, a healthcare provider. <clears throat> excuse me, or a certified health IT developer. Um, so one of the things we heard a lot about were the definitions that we use in the information blocking provisions. And that's exactly what we wanted. When we put out a proposed rule, our goal is to hear what folks are thinking, to hear whether this will work on the ground, to understand where we may have missed something or where we may have gotten it right. So what we did um, is we updated some of those definitions in the information blocking side. We updated health information network and health information exchange to make it one uh, combined uh, definition that meets the goals that we're trying to achieve. Um, another uh, component that we heard a lot about was thinking about the movement of information and the mechanism in which it moves. And that actually led to the creation of that new exception I talked about, mm -hmm. which is the content and manner exception. So that's another piece as well. Um, we also fine-tuned uh, the, the structure of the fees exception and the licensing of intellectual property exceptions. And those are really designed as a means to what we put them in a bucket is, of is um, how information moves and how you can support the movement of them. Um, so those two exceptions are designed to do that, to really think about um, what are the ways in which you can charge fees and the appropriate ways to do that. And the same thing for the licensing component. So those are two additional areas where we thought about updating the language a bit as well. And I think folks will see that. Um, also, I think the compliance timeline, which is part of what Steve talked about, is we really wanted to consider um, making sure that implementation of the rule is as effective as possible and thinking about the time it takes to make sure things are in the right place at the right time. So you'll see that across that compliance timeline that Steve talked about, really thinking about the timeline, not just for uh, the certification criteria and the components on that side, such as prior for, et cetera, but also thinking about the timeline for information blocking. We want to give folks the time to consume, understand the rule, and then mm -hmm. from there go full force into implementing it to make sure that patients and providers have what they need. 
Excellent. Did you have a question, Roberta? I did. When Now that the rules are out and we're starting our, once the federal register comes in, are you going to be over, are you the person that's going to be over the compliance when people are not compliant? Will that be your uh, purview? Well, you know, as, as, as most, most uh, folks tend to say in policy, right, it depends. <laughs> so it depends on what, <laughs> it depends on what Hasn't taken you long. <laughs> <laughs> so as Steve talked about, there's kind of two rules in one. So on the certification side of the house and the certification components, right. we put in place new conditions of certification that are required of the, of the developers that come to us to be certified. And those are things related to their business practices, to making a, a, a secure standardized API available, all of those components, uh, those fall under, under our certification program. So, yes, we would make sure that compliance is in place. Um, on the information blocking side of the house, um, some of that falls with um, our partners at HHS, such as OIG, for example. Yep. Um, so, that's, so there you'll see OIG would be more involved, and we talk about that a little bit. Um, and then I think overall we think about how we work together, and that's something that we've always done. Uh, so you'll see that there, Congress actually laid out in the Cures Act that the information blocking component is not only a requirement under what we call 4004, which is the section in, in the Cures Act, but it's also something that's required of certified health IT developers, that they don't information block. So there could be situations where ONC is stepping in in that component as well. So it, de- it, it depends and would be a balance. But our goal is always to make sure we are very clear and aligned in terms of how we are approaching that, those components. Terrific. And, and I know there's a, we're still waiting on a little bit of the teeth, right? We're still waiting for some more, um, some additional, uh, I don't know if it's rule or content or guidance on, you know, some of the teeth to this, to this rule. Is that correct? I heard that yesterday, kind of well, being called o- out. Yeah, o- OIG is working on um, um, a rule that will be coming out um, hopefully soon. So they'll be looking. So you'll see more of that enforcement or the teeth, as you say, as part of that component. And that would come from OIG. Okay. Will that be? Will that start as a proposed rule? Yes, it would be a proposed okay. rule for a comment first, and then right. you know from there they'll consider the, the comments and the feedbacks in the same way we do. Okay. We did, I should say, yep, with yep. our um, notice of proposed rulemaking. Excellent. Terrific. Well, Elise, you're always an amazing guest, very succinct, um, very crystal clear with a very complex topic. So um, we truly appreciate you uh, joining us today and, and being a wonderful guest as always. Happy to do it. And thank you so much. And thank you again to everyone who has engaged with us throughout this process. We look forward to the next step. You got it. And for one last plug, I will give you, um, so healthit.gov forward slash um, cures, cures, cures rule. rule. Cures rule. Nice and simple. Yeah. <laughs> you got it. And again, I, I went through that site in depth yesterday. It's very simple to understand, easy to navigate, uh, content specific in, in all the areas. And so I highly recommend uh, if you haven't visited the website, please check it out because it's going to, this is going to transform our industry. It's going to unleash data. It's going to allow for innovation, turn innovation on its head in a lot of areas, add transparency, uh, increase patient access. So from that that standpoint, um, I'm extremely excited for what you guys are doing and what we have. So Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you, Elise. Take care. Have a great afternoon. You as well. In Stone, I believe we have our next guest, Catherine Marchesini, Chief Privacy Officer from ONC. Are you there, Catherine? Hi, Justin. Yes, how are you? Fantastic. I'm terrific, and uh, welcome back to the show. Grateful for your time. Glad to be back. Thank you. So as we've been doing, uh, as you may have heard, kind of giving you the floor. I know there's some real key points um, from your perspective that, uh, that you want to share. So I'm going to give you the, the floor uh, and then um, and we'll do some follow-up uh, based on uh, what you uh, shared. So is that fair? Is that good? 
Sounds great. Thanks, uh-huh. Justin. All right. The floor is yours. Uh, so, yeah, appreciate it. So I think since we've been last on your show, I've been last on our show with my colleagues, mm-hmm. um, there's been a continued and resounding support for most in industries for patients to get access to their health information, as you mentioned, um, Justin. Yep. Um, not only just their health information, but their health records. And so particularly for our purposes at ONC, we've been spending a lot of time looking at patients getting electronic access to the record so they can receive it and share it with whomever they want, however they want. Um, this includes personal mobile health applications. So, you know, as I shared when we spoke um, previously, we see that providing individuals with easy access to their health information empowers them, as you heard Dr. Rucker speak earlier about, you know, controlling their decisions regarding their health and spending and costs in their overall care. Um, I know you had mentioned, I've been listening in, that you've, you've seen our final rule and as, as listeners can um, probably attest to, we remain committed to providing individuals with the opportunity to receive electronic access to their health information, as well as giving patients choice. So generally, from um, ONC's role, this deals a lot with patients' access and the portability of their data. This includes selecting which data elements they want to share, which, you know, what do they want to transmit to a third party outside of their healthcare provider's control. Um, for a healthcare provider, the final rule actually will allow providers to use technology to automate um, as well as support the existing HIPAA right of access. Mm-hmm. So ideally, it should make it more convenient for patients as well as allowing healthcare um, providers to work with developers to implement um, the HIPAA right of access. I did want to share that a little over a month ago, we at ONC had our annual meeting, and we actually had a patient-focused access panel discussion. So this was before the the rule, the rule was out. Um, there was a, a large discussion around the underlying benefits for patient access, but there also was a discussion about concerns that might exist, um, particularly around when a patient chooses to share information with a third-party app, for example. Um, so... I wanted to share that, you know, we at ONC respect um, the public calls for privacy protections and industry taking actions. Um, From my perspective, concerns around the data uses um, by those that patients choose to receive data on their behalf, you know, they're valid. Um, This is part of a national discussion around the secondary uses of data and apps that actually extends beyond healthcare. So there is this wider discussion about data privacy, stewardship, and data, um, when there should be regulatory interventions to protect that data. Um, so through the ONC Cures uh, final rule, um, we tried to strike the right balance um, and trying to find, you know, between the patient's right of access to more um, information so they can make decisions about their care um, and the data use concerns. And so we, you know, work to build in specific technical requirements that would empower individuals um, to make choices, um, and they actually are making the choices to share, as well as provisions that allow for information blocking um, actors to educate and advise um, individuals about privacy and security protections um, or risk um, that the third-party applications uh, might pose. So. Just wanted to kind of focus the conversation um, there and and happy to answer um, any other questions. Yeah, I'm going to ask one just on the consumerism side because it's one of where my passions have kind of evolved. 
uh, over the past five to 10 years in healthcare. So this certainly enables consumerism in some capacities, but this is still also a very complex and, and complicated topic uh, for, for a standard consumer to get their head around. So do you have a simple way to explain that to the average consumer of healthcare? Obviously, consumers are becoming much more informed. They're paying more for the healthcare than they ever have before. So they're, they're self-educating, which is great. Um, it's a good first step. But this is a complex topic. And so be, we can get, you know, I'm, I'm sure Roberto is going to do a follow-up on the, from a health IT vendor perspective. But from a consumer perspective, the average consumer, which I have a lot more of those now listening to my show than ever before, just to navigate healthcare on their own, what would you say to them? What is, how does this rule um, how could you simply explain to them this new rule or, or how this rule benefits them? It's a great question. Um, and it, it makes me think a little bit about, it's almost like a, a different take on health literacy. Mm-hmm. Um, but if, if, you know, in having to explain it, it's, you know, currently you as an individual have a legal right to electronically or digital, digitally obtain all of your medical records from your healthcare provider in whatever form you choose. Yes. Um, and your healthcare provider, you know, if they're using certified um, health IT technology, um, they should have that capability and it should be easy for them to do um, with no additional cost. Um, the question about, and I'm not sure if this is where, you know, included in your question, but I would touch on, there is, you know, as I mentioned earlier, there is the concern around, you know, we've heard from stakeholders that, you know, individuals, consumers, patients may not fully understand that when they receive their data or when they get their medical records from their healthcare provider and they might share it with someone um, or something, mm-hmm. that that information's not as protected um, as it would have been had it stayed with their healthcare provider. Um, and what I would say to them is just know that even prior to our rule being released, there is a strong interest and support by industry groups um, that are encouraging healthcare companies, app developers, you know, to what we would call self-regulate. Yes. Um, but to, to a consumer, it would be, you know, there are folks out there that are really trying to look after the consumers um, and trying to get folks to voluntarily adhere to what are called codes of conduct or guidelines. I mean, really trying to encourage education, transparency, much like in our role, um, we allow for healthcare providers to partner with um, health app organizations to really try to educate. um, Because from my perspective, it's, you know, we all have a role to play. um, And we at ONC are trying to do our part. And I'm just hopeful that others um, would step up to the challenge. Yeah, that is actually terrific. And I couldn't agree with you where you closed there with um, most companies, you know, they do follow self-regulation. At least from when I've been able to see, certainly the innovative players, nobody wants a breach. Nobody wants to create a breach. They don't be a part of it. It's it probably be the end of your company in the today's day and, day and age. So um, at least if it's a smaller organization. So, I mean, people really do um, – do their very best on, on the sides of codes of conduct and hopefully transparency, or at least, you know, these types of shows, these conversations, we educate people to do that. Um, so thank you for bringing that up. Roberta, what would you have as a follow-up question? So privacy really has been the key component to those, those anti, the people that are, are against. And so I've read some things and people are saying that they think that there needs to be some new 
new privacy laws put in place or at least uh, addressed. Is that something that you agree with or that you think is that is a conversation there? Uh, so I would say yes and yes. Okay. Um, I, we actually at ONC, I, um, the High Tech Act of 2009 actually required us to issue a report to Congress on this specific issue, HIPAA non-covered entity. So we actually... Um, would support um, that this conversation continue. As mentioned earlier, I mean, the concerns around um, data use are, are not unique to healthcare. Um, I think that, you know, there are existing national conversations that are happening, and I think in the future um, that those would probably either accelerate or become more focused um, in that when looking at how organizations, entities that are not currently subject to regulatory regimes or any type of uh, requirement, be it healthcare, not in healthcare, because, you know, information about your health can be derived from many things. And so I think that we as an organization, um, as well as, the United, you know, within the U.S., I really need to look at how we are tackling uh, the data use um, of information across industries. I also noticed yesterday the FTC came out with a, a statement on your on your rules, and you you actually agreed with them mm-hmm. on Twitter. Can you explain that to us? Um, yes, I know that we at ONC um, received a lot of stakeholder interest and feedback um, that wanting ONC to go further in type of um, regu- regulating mobile apps and trying to get into the space of consumer um, protection. Um, we, as a federal uh, department, we respect our other federal agencies' authority, and that, uh, to the extent there's concerns around data use and con- broader consumer protection across industry, not just health. Um, just as a reminder, that the FCC currently um, has jurisdiction over consumer protection issues, of which the non-HIPAA-covered uh, entity kind of discussion would already fall into. Um, I would be remiss, though, if I wouldn't, you know, speak to there are interest and concern in industry as to whether the FTC's current jurisdiction and authority is strong enough um, or if there's a need to create some other type of mechanism um, because right now the only way, generally speaking, that the FTC is able to enforce or protect against um, certain type of actions it's only as a result of a actor or an organization making promises um, that the FTC can then uh, enforce against. That's excellent. That's a great point. Katha Marcesini, thank you so much. You're always an amazing guest, obviously an important topic and in, in growing every single day in healthcare, which is a wonderful thing. So, Thank you, Justin Arbutter, for your time. Appreciate it. You got it. Thank you. Chief Privacy Officer, ONC, Katha Marcesini. Again, thank you. All right. You need to have her on yeah. as a guest and talk yeah. about privacy. We'll do. Okay. Love it. Great idea. Right. Dr. Jamie Skipper, are you with us? Yes. Can you hear me? I can. We can. So CEO of Elevation Health and former ONC research data scientist and a very good friend of mine, a very good uh, colleague who uh, always keeps me well-informed, well in line. And so do you do it, Roberta. And so do you, Stone. 
Um, but uh, but Jamie's always there for my emergency phone calls and something that I need to understand, um, and uh, and or a brainstorm. And she's also one of the first people that uh, supported the health innovation think tank from day one from a content standpoint, and uh, she was one of my experts. So, Dr. Skipper, without introduction, welcome to the show. Welcome back to the show. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. It's always fun to be on your show, Justin, always. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. So we're going to do a little bit of an, oh, just for my uh, listeners, we're going to do a little bit of a wrap up from what we just heard. Jamie comes from, uh, actually the ONC comes from Capitol Hill. Uh, that's where we first met uh, many, many moons ago when she worked with Dr. Gingry. Um, but uh, but you, health IT has been in your blood for a long time. You're actually, I mean, to be honest, you're one of the first legislators um, and legislative staff that actually helped us create some of the very first days of Health IT back in the uh, the late two thousands. So um, not to put age on any of us, but you're one of the pioneers. Uh, I know you don't see yourself as that, but you are. <laughs> I know it was it was an honor and privilege to be part of those pre high tech talks and and uh, sausage making of what then became high tech. But I think we did some really great work, and it's been really exciting to see where we have come. A lot of people are wanting us to be further while others want us to be slower. Right. Uh, but I think we are where we, where we need to be. Yep. I call those people ankle dro- um, anchor droppers, people who are always trying to slow us down. And I say, are you going to drop the anchor right now? Like literally we're in a test, we're testifying or we're giving comments or something. And they're like, drop the anchor. I'm like, no, 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 no. Pick that Log anchor up. The and wheel. That's right. <laughs> Let's go. Let's go. Yeah. Um, so this is going to do kind of wrap up what we just heard over the last 40 minutes, um, with Dr. Rucker, Steve, Elise, and Catherine. So, um, first of all, I'd love to get your impression. I know that you also dove into the rules yesterday. You've been ferociously reviewing everything and putting even some comments together, but I'd love to offer you the floor for a couple of minutes to give some of your high points, either what you heard or what you read or what you just had validated from what you saw and read. Yeah, so, um, you know, at Elevation, what we focus on is working with a lot of um, those third-party apps, as people would call it, the health IT developers that uh, might not be a cover of a business associate um, and those that are really trying to be accessors of the data. And so it was really exciting and really interesting to see how they newly defined uh, health information networks and health information exchanges. I think that was one of the things that we were really interested to see how they defined because the, the the way it was worded in the proposed rule kind of created this large bucket bucket that made a lot of uh, the um, health IT developers fall into that bucket that probably shouldn't have been in that bucket. Um, so the definition is something that we're excited to you know see how it, how it came out. Um, the way that they have now newly defined and, and or, or focused the definition of EHI is also uh, really important. So we're getting to what we need to get to. And I think what's really important for folks to understand, especially among my audience, is to understand from uh, the, those that are so you have you have it you have people looking at it from the data holder. How can I not information block? And my job is, Okay, so how then for the people who want to access the data, how can they access the data? How can they put themselves in a place where uh, the data holders can't claim one of the exceptions? Mm. And so I think some of the uh, provisions in the rule really clarify some of the pieces for them. So, for example, um, one of the areas um, under the privacy piece, 
um, talk about uh, a hospital or a, a data holder needing to make sure that consent is in place. And for a third-party app, well, you know, how do you do the back and forth to find out how the data holder can't claim the exception? And now the rule specifically says um, that the data holder has to have an authorization form that they need to give out that then specifically says what criteria need to be met. That in itself, I think, is a huge, huge win for the app developers so that it's very clear to them on what they need to do. There's a lot of other pieces like that that I'm excited about, um, but I could talk on forever, so I'll stop there. Yeah, no, this is exactly what I want to dive into. I want to kind of, you know, give the floor to you a little bit and let you say, hey, you know, this is what uh, that hurt. I heard, I mean, I've only heard really at this point kind of favorable um, feedback from the rule, from what I've read, from what I've seen from Clarity. Uh, I think that some of the terms, you know, this was very accommodating to the industry. I heard that even this morning speaking with somebody mm-hmm. uh, before we went on air. So, I mean, I think overall it's being well received. I think it's very fair. We're still going to learn more of the teeth, I believe, that we just heard. And this came out in some of the calls yesterday that I was on, but also that the OIG will be putting out a proposed rule uh, here in the short run on um, on how we're going to do some enforcement and some, quote, unquote, the teeth um, of, uh, of how we're going to yep. enforce some of these components. Um, but uh, – right. Yeah, but I think all from a from a fair timeline. This has the, actually the clock, the six month on the um, information blocking rule hasn't even timeline hasn't even started yet. It won't even until it goes into the federal register. So I think all this right. is just again very fair. So what are some of your thoughts there? Yeah, so I think it's really interesting that folks you know catch that you know it's uh, once the rule gets into the federal register, there's six months, right? Yep. As, as as Steve said. Yep. Um, then after that, based on what as Elise said. Uh, once the OIG specifically defines in their rule and, 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 you know, you guys specified, you know, there's going to be a proposed rule and then a final rule around what constitutes, uh, you know, civil, civil penalties and what that's going to look like, then OIG is going to be able to go after the folks that are information blocking. Mm-hmm. Um, there is going to be another piece in there that I haven't got clarity on myself, but we're, we're, we're looking into it and it's going to be a really important question to ask. And, and Elise alluded, alluded to this, um, where she's very, uh, very astute in um, making sure that she leaves the door open because it's going to be interesting to see what other players also have enforcement capabilities. So, for example, under the um, uh, under, you know, uh, you know, DOJ, DOJ can go after you know the um, I, I'm, I'm losing the words here um, in terms of uh, you know trade practices to, to, where, yeah. where they say that you have to you have to live by what you say, right? Yes. So it's going to be interesting to see how DOJ comes into into the practice there too, in addition to what OIG can do in terms of uh, in terms of uh, information blocking. And so, and, and as uh, Elise, I mean, sorry, as, as Catherine said, in terms of what FTC's uh, enforcement uh, capabilities are going to be, it's the, 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 the kind of landscape of enforcement between all these agencies is going to be interesting to stitch together. Yep. But again, I'll have to say, those are the, for the folks that, you know, are aiming to, to you know, try to block information. <laughs> Um, so from the uh, from the point of view of of the folks that are kind of broadly in my audience, which are the folks that are the data accessors, 
this is also this is also important to understand because as they try to access the data, what's the ace in your pocket to know, you know, what the data holders can and can't do uh, is going to be interesting to have as, you know, they go to those conversations, to those renegotiation tables. Um, but I will say that, and, I, and we said this before in some of our own blogs in Elevation, you know, of course, you're creating business relationships here. So it's important right. to know what the landscape is, but uh, go forward very, you know, very lightly and, and very, very suitly. Yep. No, very good point. And one of the other pieces that I wanted to call out uh, and that we covered pretty well with Steve are the key timelines. So, you know, zero to six months um, to start off with with the um, information blocking. And then you've got six to 24 months with covered the US CDI and then 24 months after that for the full scope. So I think that gives the industry a lot of time, you know, obviously, as, as my previous hat in the vendor world, you know, we wanted sometimes 18 months before any significant changes, but they do a good job with laying out some timelines um, there. Uh, Roberta, you want to ask a question or make a statement there? Yeah, I asked uh, Steve the same thing and that how do you see the industry? Are they prepared for this? Right. Yeah. You should, work with third party I, people, you said. Yeah. What would be your opinion on that? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it's um, well, I think the fear that I had, I will say, is go, is, was around how they were going to define HIE, HIN. Because the folks that may have fallen into the bucket if they would have been more broad about their definition, I think there would have been a lot more folks, uh, a lot more third-party entities that wouldn't have been prepared because they are not watching this. Um, but um, I think that the way that they defined it, a lot of those players hopefully have been uh, watching it to some degree. But I really, really hope that folks work with entities uh, like Elevation and, and folks that have been in this sphere. Because uh, what's really important is understanding how all of these pieces of legislation yes. uh, and regulations work together to stitch together the business model that they need to have to be successful in the healthcare paradigm. Because, you know, uh, we had a lot of discussion around the ONC information blocking rule and the certification criteria. But as Karen alluded to before the ONC folks came on, is that, you know, there's a huge play here with CMS's rule that also came out on Monday with how the health plans need to act and how, you know, the, the data needs to be uh, cha- uh, exchangeable and how they need to be transparent with their information. Um, and there's other rules also that are going to be at play in terms of how this landscape shapes up for data to flow to uh, optimize care and to uh, improve patient outcomes. I'll be looking for your blog post on HIE versus HIN. Is that right? <laughs> yes. <Exactly. laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Put, put that and in please the queue. Do, you know, one of the one of the, one of the rule one of the blogs I want to point to is last year, uh, last summer, right after the uh, comments came in from the proposed rule. Uh, uh, once once the comment period finished, we we did put out a couple blog posts on what the comments overall said, and that was really interesting as well. Great, that's excellent. So one thing I'll kind of wrap up here, you know, and I get your opinion too is. 
Dr. Rucker started off with just the importance of having a transparent business model. And if you did not have a transparent business model, uh, and I think even um, John Holomka talked about that, uh, Anish talked, talked about that, um, and even Karen uh, mentioned that a little bit as well, Dr. DeSalvo. So I think that's important. If you don't have a transparent business model, you could be in trouble. And so this this rule really highlights that. Uh, and not only does it uh, support interoperability and, and uh, consumerism, but really you know, API-based transparency um, out there in healthcare. So I love it. So what uh, thoughts would you have to add to that, um, Jamie? Right. Well, I would be remiss to say that the two of the things that we've been watching here is around the effect of interoperability and the future of interoperability and info blocking, as well as the huge trend that we're seeing around telehealth. And, you know, and I know that that's your next panel, so I thought maybe I can make a, a, a comment that Cue would up, yes. be a segue Thank you. in that, you know, the data that you need to flow to optimize telehealth will also rest on some of the you know, provisions in the uh, ONC and CMS rule, too. So the interplay between those spheres are going to be very important to, uh, to uh, you know, process. Oh, excellent point. And you, you do cue me up very well because we do have a virtual care strategy and innovation panel coming, which we actually had that panel scheduled four months ago and, and planned four months ago because we knew the importance of it. However, you know, now with COVID-19 and coronavirus and preparedness Absolutely. and all mm-hmm. and the cancellation of, of hymns and then all of this is happening across the country and even globally, um, virtual care is more prominent than ever on everybody's radar screen. Uh, so I think we're, extra, we're, we're visionary, we're, we're timely, uh, and, uh, and obviously grateful for the opportunity here. So, um, but Dr. Skipper, always amazing, um, partner, uh, guest, um, friend, colleague, strategist. Um, I, I'm grateful for your time and thank you for, uh, for joining us, but I'll give you, you know, 30 seconds on um, anything that you want to say regarding what we should be keep keeping an eye on from a strategy standpoint, from a policy standpoint. Um, what do you think? Floor is yours. Yeah. So it's going to be really interesting to watch regulation as it changes and legislation that's uh, right on the floor now uh, that's or coming on the floor soon in terms of expanding telehealth uh, reimbursement. Um, and so that's something to definitely bring up in your panel. Um, it's also going to be really interesting to watch some of the other rules that are going to be coming out later this year, probably, or very soon, not only the OIG rule around, um, around how to enforce around information blocking, but also around sharing, uh, health IT, uh, in terms of, uh, anti-kickback and Stark as well as a possibly some updates on HIPAA itself. So uh, keep keep, in, keep uh, all of that, you know, in the forefront. There's still a lot of changes coming. Yep. No, great point. I mean, as you and I have worked for well over a decade, I mean, you've got to successfully navigate legislation, regulation, because it can either fuel your strategy and fuel your company, fuel your efforts, or completely yep. hinder them and, and or eliminate them. So you got to stay on top of this, Absolutely. as you just said, so eloquently. Excellent. Yes. Thank you so much for having me, Justin. You got a Dr. Skipper. And we're going to take a quick station break. Roberta, I can hand it over to you for a second. Sure. Um, but, uh, but we actually got our next guest starting to come on. But um, we'll take a quick break here, not even uh, 90 seconds. We'll be right back. But the floor is yours, Roberta. Thank you. I, I'm actually wanting to thank everybody that is, is tuning in right now and thank mm-hmm. Stone, 
for Business Radio X for helping us and connecting. Hi, Stone. Well, hello there. No, I've had a great time. Everyone on the show today has so many IQ points on me, and I'm in awe of that. But I got to tell you, as a lay person to this whole conversation, I'm resting a little bit easier. I feel like some smart people are putting some real energy and effort and resources into this, and I'm actually going home feeling a lot more comfortable than I than I did before I got here. So for whatever that's worth, guys, thank you for what you're doing. Yeah, that's right. Um, and I also wanted to take a couple minutes on on Healthcare Now Radio. Um, if you don't know me, I'm Roberta Mullen. I'm the station manager, and Healthcare Now Radio is owned by Answers Media. You might have known us in the past uh, with our sites of High Tech Answers and HIE Answers and Health Data Answers and RCM Answers. We had a whole slew of answers um, <laughs> Sites, but we have since the beginning of the year consolidated all of our sites, all of our media sites into healthitanswers.net. And so all of our news now you can find there. And our other site is, of course, this Healthcare Now Radio, which Justin is one of our original original hosts. He's he's had more than he's He's closing in on 200 episodes, I believe. Wow. Um, but you can go to healthcarenowradio.com. You can see all of our lineup. You can listen. You can ask Alexa to turn us on. You can, um, you can go out to our SoundCloud channel that you can get through to, from our Healthcare Now Radio and, um, and listen to all past, all, all past episodes of all of our shows. Our newest addition to Healthcare Now Radio is our podcast. So we have healthcare, we have healthcare radio station, and that has our shows like this just in. But now we are now syndicating and promoting podcasts. So if your company has a podcast, let us know. We'll put it in our network. And Justin is back. Excellent. Thank you very much, everybody. Appreciate it. We've got a great listenership today. Hopefully this has been uh, informative for everybody. I love doing this show every single year. Uh, again, this is our sixth year around HIMSS. It's, it's been a pleasure. Very fortunate. Uh, Roberta's been with me since beginning. The actual show was her mm-hmm. idea initially many, many <laughs> moons ago. She brought it to me and pitched it, um, and I was, I was all bought in. Um, and then and Stone, the rest is history. And the rest is history. <laughs> Uh, and then uh, Stone, um, married up with Stone and Business Radio X, and they've been broadcasting also live from HIMS from HIMS 15 and just phenomenal partners. So, And we're all here in Atlanta, so it's very easy for us to get together. Fantastic. Right? Excellent. So, yeah, this, this uh, makeup show or this show uh, must go on. It did go on. And uh, we're very fortunate for this opportunity. So um, I want to say welcome back to everybody. Uh, and then certainly um, – we're grateful for this uh, panel that we're about to do here. Uh, but I also want to say uh, many thanks to our production partners, Lenovo Health, Rama on Healthcare, and certainly uh, Business Radio X and uh, Roberta Mullen with Healthcare Now Radio. You guys have been great supporters through the many, many years. It takes an army uh, to put this together uh, and then support this throughout the year. So um, many thanks to all. Uh, and I could not be more excited. And the most timely panel I think we've ever done. Again, I think a lot of our listeners heard before we planned this panel four months ago, uh, but now just with COVID-19 and coronavirus, uh, more timely than ever. And to have these experts coming together to discuss best practices, strategies, uh, and then really um, how it's core to healthcare. It has nothing to do really with even COVID-19 or, or coronavirus, just how virtual healthcare, virtual care, telemedicine, remote care, remote care monitoring are all 
they need to be central. Uh, the only thing positive that comes out of this is that hopefully this is all going to expedite. But, uh, you know, from chronic care management and what we need to do in healthcare to reduce our cost, reduce, uh, increase our efficacy, um, and, uh, and just really expand and, and treat that patient where and how they need to be treated is extremely important. So um, let's go ahead and uh, kick off our virtual care strategy and innovation panel. I believe all my guests are there. Stone, is that correct? I believe so. Fantastic. So uh, Dr. Sylvan Waller, are you there? Good afternoon. I am. Thank you, Justin. How are you? Fantastic, my friend. Welcome to the show. Thank you. And uh, Mac McCua, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Pleasure to be on. Excellent. Hey, Justin, I'm here as well. This is Matt. I had a different headset on. I apologize for that. Excellent. Now, Matt, welcome to the show, my friend. So, uh, Sylvan Waller, a local physician executive and virtual care expert and member of our health innovation think tank. Welcome, Sylvan. And Thank you very much, Justin. I appreciate the chance to be on and had a chance to listen to many of the uh, speakers that uh, you know, were on the show earlier today and really a fantastic lineup. So excited and honored to be part of that. Thank you, my friend. Always. Uh, Matt McCula, Global Manager, Healthcare Solutions, Lenovo, and certainly member of our Health Innovation Think Tank. Welcome, Matt. Well, thank you very much. Glad to be here. You got it, my friend. And Farhad Chowdhury, CEO of Vianova Health and member of our Health Innovation Think Tank as well. And obviously, there's a, a great theme here but from our Think Tank, but welcome, Farhad. Thank you. Um, and, I, and I did have my opening comments here. It's sad that it takes a pandemic to get us uh, here and talking about this, <laughs> but we did have this planned uh, many, many months ago. But, um, but this momentum, I think we'll capitalize on this momentum at least. Uh, you know, and I was even talking with um, you know, uh, one of your peers, Bob Monteverdi, earlier today, uh, how it, um, you know, it's, uh, it's unfortunate about uh, COVID and coronavirus, but it's, it, is, it is important that we really take up the topic and move virtual care to the forefront of healthcare. Um, and so I know that's one of our, you know, our main topic today. And, and what we're going to do is share best practices, strategies, um, where it's evolving, how it's evolving, what we can see, uh, and really tackle this chronic care because that's really the issue out there. I mean, I know some of the, what the headlines say today, but really trying to tackle um, chronic conditions and, and just get this under control. Our consumers deserve it. Our health systems, our care providers deserve it. Our nation needs it. The world needs it. Um, and I know at least we're going to be moving forward much more quickly now. So um, I'm going to start this off. Real quick question um, over to you, Dr. Waller. Uh, do a little bit of a level set. I mean, I think, where do you see virtual care innovation evolving? Where do we see it today a little bit? Uh, but then certainly, where do we see some evolution? Yeah, thank you for the question. Um, so, you know, a couple of key data points as we talk about, you know, level setting here. Um, but when we talk about, you know, where virtual care can provide value, um, Anthem recently did a study showing that millennials are at risk for having about a 40% higher disease burden than prior generations. Uh, and so if you think about that, mm. um, part of that is, you know, access to care, right? Still takes about a month to be able to see your family doctor in the U.S. Um, part of it is how they access other services. They're used to, you know, using Uber, using, you know, uh, on-demand apps to be able to get all of their services. And so because healthcare isn't designed that way, it's not really created to, you know, you don't really get to say like, oh, I want healthcare delivered on my terms, it creates a barrier to access for you know a large generation between you know born between 81 and, and 96. Um, when you look at uh, again an Accenture study that showed sort of you know who has a PCP, so it was like 85% of baby boomers, 75% of Gen X, 65% of millennials, and then 50 55% of Gen Z. So when we think about you know virtual care, 
the goal here is to be able to do things like reduce that potential disease burden on millennials that, that is going to be 40% higher than previous generations and really deliver care on their terms. And so I think that the two things that are going on today are very timely, right? So one is coronavirus. Um, you know, this is really, it has the potential to be a significant driver for people to adopt more virtual care. You know, before a lot of pundits, you know, felt that people still wanted to do, you know, see their doctor, you know, mm-hmm. go to a brick and office setting. Yeah. And what we're seeing now is, you know, a massive disruption of that because it's being forced on them. And and CDC, you know, came out and said, you know, virtual care telehealth should be the first um, sort of point of access in a you know situation like this. And so we can we can address the acute issues, but we have to be able to do it in a way that you know empowers the consumer and allows them to have um, you know care delivered on their terms. And that's really the the second point, you know, that that you and I have talked about before in terms of consumerism. But I think with the HS HHS interoperability and access rules that we were just talking about uh, on the show before this, um, that is tremendously powerful to help consumers. Again, um, you know, they have access and ownership of their data. Um, they can then uh, help, you know, take um, control over how healthcare can be delivered to them. And there can be more engagement and more agency you know, of those uh, patient populations. And so I think those are just a couple of the things that, you know, we're, we're seeing virtual care, um, you know, and particularly on the innovation side, evolving um, as it has been, and then will continue to evolve over the next couple of years. I love it. So before we move on, I would like for you to cover, because you really have a great hands-on um, with patients too in the industry. What innovation, you know, does this, what does this mean um, for patients? Uh, what does virtual care mean for patients out there? Because I'm shifting uh, my show significantly also onto the consumerism side of the world. And I'd love to, I really like to bring education to them. This is complex. This is complicated for them. It's, um, there's a lot of fear at, at times, uh, but I want to help people with, you know, kind of get over some of these hurdles, but what does innovation mean for patients in healthcare? Yeah. So in terms of, you know, virtual care specifically, right. If we think about it, the doctor's office visit hasn't really evolved in a hundred years. And this is just a really simple example. Um, but virtual care now means, we can use technology to break down a lot of those barriers to access. So it doesn't necessarily involve um, right scheduling to go in and see your doctor, which could be a month in advance. It doesn't mean you know an episode of care, which is you know the seven or eight minutes that a primary care gets with a patient these days. Um, it doesn't mean building a, biz, uh, a visit around you know what do we need to do to make sure that we're um, we're being able to satisfy um, you know re- practice requirements here. It's really looking at the consumer and saying what's providing value to them on one end and then what's providing value to the clinician on the other. And the goal is to connect those two and remove as many of those you know, traditional barriers to care as possible. And so virtual care can be, if you think about it, um, right, everything from uh, chatbot on the front end, like you know, we're seeing a lot of companies introduced to be able to deal with their questions around coronavirus, um, using AI to be able to you know, determine sort of who's you know, high, medium, or low risk. Mm-hmm. It can be, instead of scheduling software, it can be, you know, then uh, interacting with a health coach or a physician to be able to answer some of their questions. And it can be, you know, leveraging longitudinal care to say, we know, you know, why, we know what your past medical history is, you know, what we know what else is going on with you. We can incorporate things like social determinants of health into the care that we're providing. And it moves away from that concept of just an episode of care to now being able to deliver a much more longitudinal experience. 
And I, I think that's one of the key things that, you know, how virtual care will continue to evolve is it'll move away from the idea of an episode towards much more of, um, you know, an ongoing, you know, constantly on ability to access care. And that doesn't mean it has to be high acuity, high intensity. But I think if we can provide consumers with answers to their questions that they have and guidance early on, we can prevent the complications of you know, chronic disease that you were talking about just a moment ago. Yep. No, that's terrific. And I think three, if not four of my guests brought up longitudinal care and how you know this not only does new rule help create that, but that is an important key strategy. I mean, Dr. Holomka, Dr. DeSalvo, Don Rucker, um, all brought up, Anish brought up the importance, and actually Rasu, so I think almost every single one of my previous guests brought up the importance of a longitudinal care record um, for patients. And this is not, again, and not, we're getting so far and fast away from episodic care and episodic records to really understanding the long term. And then that's when you get into a lot of the intelligence behind all of this as well. So I think you support that completely. Yeah, and I, and I think that's a key component, right? And, and as we talk about virtual care and innovation, um, it is the data and analytics. You know, not now we say AI, but it was big data before and sort of business analytics, you know, before that. Um, but even, you know, in some of the think tank uh, presentations that you and I have, have seen and participated in, um, the level of detail in terms of the data that we can capture um, and how we can make that actionable. I mean, I think I, I go back to a, you know, a presentation we saw on social determinants of health. Um, but that has a tremendous impact on these patients. And so now virtual care can be um, really relying heavily on data to provide actionable insights and then uh, ways that clinicians can help uh, coach patients, uh, provide you know, earlier interventions for them. Uh, and I think you know, the data is a key component here and our ability to use machine learning and AI, those, those are buzz, buzzwords, mm-hmm. um, they're really powerful in terms of what we can deliver to patients. And I think we'll continue to see the proliferation of that. Excellent. And to be honest, I actually have your notes from that last think tank. They were phenomenal from our care strategy discussion. So I would do recommend all my listeners to go to healthinnovationthinktank.com. And, uh, and Dr. Walter does share a bunch of great insights. They're in uh, think tank six, but I actually have them up in front of me right this moment in case we have time to get to them because they were, they were phenomenal. And there's some great key learnings uh, that you shared during that think tank. Um, but, uh, but maybe we'll get to them well, in, in a little bit. You got it, my friend. Uh, Matt McCula from Lenovo. Well, from your perspective, what are some of the virtual care trends that you're seeing in the industry, my friend? Yeah, I think it's very synergetic with uh, the last statements that were just made. Fundamentally speaking, I think it's about making the technology easy, and that is both from the provider perspective as well as from the patient perspective. So consolidation of technologies. If you talk to certain hospitals, you may have four or five or six different ways to do an e-visit. Having that be more fundamental and more platform oriented in its approach. It's necessary, really necessary to drive into being able to operationalize it across, uh, across businesses. Secondly, if you just look at uh, assistance in terms of the treatments or the care plans that are being administrated, doing that in a digital sense, making that easy for the patient. And from a provider perspective, allowing that to spend more than a single treatment so you don't have each treatment type having its own dedicated device with its own dedicated app, its own dedicated technology on the back end. And of course, each of those uh, platforms having to be integrated with the EHR sort of span off some of the earlier discussions. So um, from that perspective, making it easy to use from a patient perspective, having it in a home environment, it's a lot about just uh, education and being able to deliver education 
through the virtual platforms into the home environment where it can be more targeted to their condition, keep the patients, um, you know, off their web browsers and browsers and giving them relevant information specific to their care condition. So I think that's, uh, you know, from a Lenovo perspective, that's some of the things we think we can help with. And I think that's a lot of the, the going trends that we've been seeing. Yeah, I completely agree. Certainly, you know, the remote care, um, even Dr. Halamka brought up this morning, the home hospital, which I had not heard of that uh, that term before. But yeah, we're, we're shifting care dramatically. We need to, as a country, we also need to make sure that um, our payment reforms and our payment models support that. That's something very, I think that's one of the big key pieces. I know that Rasu talked about that during his talk, is the need for us to keep our um, public policy uh, evolving so we can support these type of infrastructures. And Anish brought it up as well. We've got to make sure that we have the right payment models in place to support this because we can have all these great innovations. We know we know the, cost, the need is there. Um, now we know the need is there even more greatly with what's going on today. Uh, but um, but we've also got to make sure that we have uh, the payments follow suit just to support this. Um, and consumerism, I think that you guys are on the forefront of consumerism. And that's, as I mentioned a couple of times, near and dear to the show now. Uh, and even uh, I think it's one of the great pieces about the interoperability rule yesterday is how consumerism, this really enables much more consumerism, patient access, uh, and, and certainly interoperability uh, with a lot of these um, app-based uh, app devices and um, app-based devices. So, and certainly API-based interoperability. So anything you want yeah, to... Yeah, about, about, about that, Justin, it's just also, uh, you got to look at the logistics involved in, again, making this easy to use and span into the patient population. So once you start going after these treatment types and it involves bringing, say, kits into the home environment, a lot of logistics involved in both connectivity and the connectivity challenges that are there, but also in just pure um, distribution of the kits that would be needed in a patient's home, making that very easy to use, making that adaptable into the patient environment. What happens when the patient's done? How do you collect the the kit and manage those logistics? Really, the care providers obviously want to be focused on providing the care. They don't Mm -hmm. want to necessarily delve into the logistical elements of this to make this sticky and have the broadest impact. So I think this becomes a, a little bit about the logistics and, and, again, trying to make that seamless and as easy to use as possible. Yeah, and you bring up a good point there. Remote care logistics is a term that you guys actually educated me on, uh, and, I, and I love it and I appreciate it, and I know it's something key. So, I mean, just so from, for my audience, people who may not have had that on the forefront, can you give me 30 seconds on the importance of remote care logistics? Well, sure. So as I mentioned, um, ultimately speaking, if you're a provider that's looking to get into the virtual care space and you want to go deeper with patients than just doing an e-visit, it becomes about that data collection that keeps being brought up. Mm-hmm. How do you get the data that would be relevant to their condition back into either the care environment or fundamentally into the EHR in itself? So that involves distribution and ensuring that you have something that's extremely easy to use, that's well-tested, that works out of the box, that likely has a display that uh, can work with the patient in a way that's meaningful to them. Could it be displaying patient education? Could it be uh, remotely administrating, say, a digital care plan, prompting them with questions about how they feel, the uh, the diet that they're on and, and sort of, uh, you know, walking them through how to use the kit. So uh, that pure delivery element of it is a big part of logistics that can be challenging for, say, some of the small software companies that are entering into the space. Um, and then once the overall impacts start to occur, the habits are formed, the patients are then better at their care. We'd love to see the 
the patients, you know, continuing to use technology like this, but the reality is oftentimes that they move on and then there is what to do next. That can involve collection of the biometric kits, refurbishment of the kits, redistribution to new patients, all the training and the uh, overall overhead that comes along with that is a big part of the consideration and going deeper into the home environment. It's fantastic. Thank you. No, it's something that's just not part of our vernacular today, and so I um, appreciate the education and the insight. Farhad, welcome back to the show, my friend. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. You guys got a great company. Um, so first of all, I know about Vianova, but please uh, give me 30 seconds. Give the audience 30 seconds on Vianova Health. Um, yeah, so Vianova Health is, you know, we've been around for three years. I would consider ourselves really a habit formation company. Um, the entire team is certified by the Stanford Behavior Design Labs founder, Dr. Fogg, in habit formation. I think we have the best science and IP related to habit formation, and Dr. Fogg even came on as, a, as an advisor um, of our organization. And we basically said we are obsessed with tiny, healthy habits and how do we uh, you know, bring that about to people and said, let's target you know, the most difficult demographic that's out there, chronic disease patients who definitely really you can have the most impact on and applied this methodology to that. And so we took our habit IP and applied it to a remote patient monitoring platform and said, let's go ahead and build um, an omni-channel approach to meet patients where they are. So as you know, your Dr. Silver talked about, you know, millennials are on their smartphones. The average millennial uses their phone about six hours a day. And, you know, we have this, you know, people keep talking about home care and, you know, it's the last mile. You know, if they say home is where the heart is today, we think home is where the smartphone is. Mm. And that's the truth with millennials. Um, but at the same time, you got a great challenge of only 25 percent of seniors are on smartphones. So you can't have a smartphone solution. You really need a solution that uses the phone. And, but the phone is just not rich enough. It doesn't engage. It's not easy enough. And so we need to provide something that, that is the richest experience for telemedicine and monitoring. And we felt like going back to our core principle, habit formation can only occur if it's simple. We got to make it super simple. And so we built, like we said, Vianova is a habit formation company that is now purely focused on remote patient monitoring for chronic disease patients. We work with the largest hospital systems in the country. And um, we've recently partnered with a, a great company that will help us do the distribution. It's called Lenovo. <laughs> and so happy to, uh, I hope I answered your question. Yeah, no, it's great. And actually, I'll take a quick point here because I, I, I love my conversations with you. You've just, you've built a great company, but the habit formation, I just want to take a moment because I don't want to kind of gloss over that for my audience because tiny healthy habits is how I've recently lost 35 pounds. And I did, I did it over a period of time, I mean, several years. I wouldn't stress about it. It was, it was a minor goal. It wasn't like I needed to, um, but it was just getting in shape. I decided to about five years ago to, to begin a process to, to live a healthier, just a healthier life, eat healthier foods, exercise on a regular basis, um, ha- you know, moderate habits, all this mm-hmm. kind of stuff. But it's, it's tiny, it was all tiny, healthy habits on a, daily, on a regular basis. Sometimes it's not even a daily basis. It's not about you know, doing something dramatically one day because you're probably going to not do that then again a week later. But if you have these tiny healthy habits – it, it was a significant uh, change in my life. I have more energy than ever. I'm at my ideal weight, uh, and it came from tiny, healthy habits. So just from a psychology point, um, not even about technology. It's not about interoperability rules. It's not about virtual care. It's about what everybody can do in, this, in my earshot, in our earshot, to, to have a better life. 
a healthier life. Yeah. So what do you think of that? I agree with, I agree with you 100%. And I think you stated it beautifully. I think at the end of it, I mean, we get caught up with a lot of terms, but it is a psychology problem. And I would say that healthcare really is a habit formation issue. Mm-hmm. That's what we got to start shifting to. It's all about habits. We have to go from health care to health coaching and coaching patients to, to better habits, which leads to better health. And that's literally our tagline, better habits, better health. That's the tagline of the company. That's the mission statement. And we think there's a definite mindset shift that has to happen for that to occur. And uh, the fact that you state that is beautiful. We, but I just wanted to add, we, you know, there's two ways to approach that. Mm-hmm. You can have an active engagement with patients, you know, uh, an app or a tool that alerts a patient, that's engaging them, that notifies them, that reminds them. Kind of like what we built with Rosie. Rosie's our digital assistant oh, yes. to remind you, to follow up, to engage you. But we also are now moving into a trend of what's called digital phenotyping, which is the passive data that you have on a person's phone, how they sit, how they move. You can get their social index. You know how many friends a person has mm. if they're lonely. You can predict if they're uh, depressed, anxious. And now with phenotyping, which is the passive data on your phone, you can even predict when someone's going to have stroke if a CHF patient is starting to use the, their left hand instead of their right hand. So we believe that you can use passive data and active data and combine those two to really develop and strengthen the tiny healthy habits that really bring around long-term change. I love it. I love it. I kind of live and breathe part of that, but you guys take it to obviously a whole nother level with a lot of uh, wisdom and innovation. So um, fantastic. So um, specifically, I know you covered some good points there, but um, what are some of the trends that you're seeing in the industry specifically? Um, we're seeing, like I said, the, the trends that we see kind of a, interesting and I'll maybe be a little bit counterintuitive here is telemedicine itself as, you know, as we've seen these deployments, it really is moving away from video calls and phone calls to chat in some institutions. I mean, large hospital systems that we work with, they started telling us that 98% of the telemedicine engagement was chat. Um, and so we've created But the problem that I said before, 25% of your seniors, they're not using smartphones. Chat is not their forte. So we've created a very rich, simple engagement. It's almost like Alexa Live, visual Alexa with live interaction with the clinician. And we think that's the future of chatting with seniors and really just taking it to a whole other level. So I think that trend line is very key. The second one I kind of brought up already is phenotyping. You're going to hear this as the hot buzzword. I think HIMSS in two years will be like a talk about digital phenotyping. We work with some of the smartest people at Harvard right now, and we're working and we have um, some really good technology. But basically, your phenotype is, um, you can learn, know a lot about a human being based on how they use their phone. And think about how many hours a day you're attached to your phone. I can even kind of assess people's personality types, you know, beyond sleep and mood. And so the passive data on your phone tells you a lot about you. And there's this great quote. It's that your phenotype is the new genotype. Mm. Just like with genomics, we know so much about a person. Mm. I think we're going to know so much about a person based on just how they use their phone, where they are. That is really true AI and predictability, biomarkers for detection to, like I said, tiny health habit formation. And I think the last thing that you're starting to see as a real trend line is, um, you know, you need sensors in the in the world of virtual care, and you're you're seeing a lot of devices coming out, but they're getting consolidated. One device that can do five readings instead right. of one device that just does one reading. Yep. And that's really the trend line going forward. 
That's excellent. Yeah, and I, actually, one of the terms that um, Dr. Holomka mentioned earlier today was um, wearables wisdom. I loved it. Wearables wisdom. I'm going to keep that one too. So uh, that's awesome. So I think just um, sticking with you, and then I'll bounce over um, to Matt after this. Uh, but uh, thinking beyond today, what are some of the key strategies and trends? And you just covered certainly phenotyping that we must be ready to successfully navigate in three years from now. Because we know what we're, we're we know what we're looking at. It's it's very complex, and I get that. But um, but I also want to keep an eye towards the future. So what uh, words of wisdom or nuggets of wisdom would you share there? I mean the the last two kind of words of wisdom is. I really want healthcare to start moving into the thinking about habit. And like you said before, and I'll give you one simple one. I think we're seeing a massive trend line that shows the correlation between what I call is screen time and sit time. And if you look at the correlation between smartphone utilization and immobility amongst Americans and the obesity epidemic from mm-hmm. 2007 to 2009, yeah. our unhealthy digital habits are impacting our actual health. And I don't think people are making that correlation and so smartphone utilization, social media utilization, the depression and the anxiety, you know, if, a, if a, middle, a kid in middle school, a boy starts using, is on social media, 25% higher indication of suicide. A girl is 70% higher if they're starting to use social media when they're in middle school. We got to start mm-hmm. looking at the correlation between our digital health and our digital world with our actual health. And so the last point that I wanted to make was to say back to that, for everybody that's under the age of 40, home is where the phone is. Home is where, that, where the smartphone is. And we really got to rethink a person based on that. That's so fantastic. that's the trend line we work for. Excellent, Farhad. Appreciate those insights, my friend. So Matt, from your perspective, where should we be keeping an eye on three years from now? Again, I just think it's about uh, getting easy to use and having uh, more adoption in the space that we're all here to talk about today. It's moving from the traditional care environments out into the home space it's about seeing the impact. It's about finally bridging the gap between all the biometric data that's available to us and how we're going to consolidate that in a meaningful way that works for the caregivers. It's, uh, there's so many different enablers, so many different drivers that are motivating to push into the virtual care realm. I think it's going to become the reality now. It's going to be a lot of the discussions that have been taking place at you know, would have happened this year at Hims, and it happened in previous years at Hims. Those things are going to start to come to fruition now. Fantastic! I appreciate it. Excellent. I agree, Doctor Waller. What words of wisdom here? And, and certainly, looking three years down the road, what should we keep our eye on? Yeah, thank you, and I I agree with Farhad. I think um, you know I, I'm a fan of uh, BJ's work, um, who's you know the, the advisor that comes out of the Stanford Center. I, mm-hmm. I think again the um, tiny, tiny habits and uh, that focus um, helps people understand, you know, where they have control over their health. Uh, and I think virtual care can do a better job of integrating some of that into the systems that we're building um, to be able to help give them positive feedback around some of these things. Um, and I think, you know, that's a, that's a key component of it. I, I agree as well. Um, right, in the work that I do today, working with a bunch of, you know, venture-backed, high-growth healthcare technology companies, um, that concept of digital phenotyping is a big push for many of them. And, you know, again, being able to capture that data off of your smartphone, be able to determine, you know, a lot of your behaviors um, has become incredibly um, better refined over the last couple of years. And I think we'll see a continued explosion in that area over the next few. Um, and I still go back to, you know, automation. And, and I think um, 
Matt, you mentioned it, or, or uh, Farhad, you did. But in terms of chat being a major modality, you know, yes. when I was at um, you know one of the largest telemedicine companies in the country as CMO, um, you know, 98% of our visits were um, video when I started there. And what we're seeing now is, you know, a lot of, you know, I do some work with health systems and hospitals, uh, you know, a lot of what they're looking at is that's a great modality, but we want to be able to capture a younger demographic. We want to be able to do um, chat and asynchronous visits with them or encounters with them or, you know, longitudinal care with them. Um, and so you do have to have a comprehensive solution and it's, you know, different choices for different folks. So um, millennials, you know, are very comfortable with chat, but um, far ahead, as you said, you know, older generations, you know, still want. Uh, you know, a more traditional experience and they want to be able to talk to or see. And that's where, you know, you do have to have a more robust uh, product to be able to offer solutions to those, um, to those stakeholders. So I think we'll, we'll see, you know, continued focus on consumerism, continued focus on proliferation, you know, ways where we're delivering virtual care. Um, I think we'll see, as you talked about, you know, better and better uh, consolidation of the biometrics and not just biometrics, but home testing as well. And I think we're, we're seeing that already today. Um, so I think key things, key themes we've all talked about, and we'll continue to see those you know, doubling down on any of those. Excellent. I completely agree. Gentlemen, fantastic panel. You guys are awesome. You obviously uh, are invigorating and give a, a lot of phenomenal thought leadership. Uh, I actually took copious notes here, and, 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 I, and I love the content. Um, certainly uh, phenotyping and habit formation. I, um, I completely agree. So love it. Gentlemen, as always, a pleasure. Um, Dr. Waller, Matt, Farhad. Um, you guys are phenomenal guests, and I truly appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedules. I know uh, our world's all shifted very quickly with the cancellation of hymns, and so I appreciate you guys uh, making this show happening still, and the panel still. So thank you. Thank you. All righty. Thank you, gentlemen. And uh, Stone is my next guest here. Dr. Bobier, founder and CEO of Cure For You. Yes. Welcome. Back to the show. Thank you. Excellent. And obviously, um, you're a leader and a pioneer in this space as well. So I know, um, were you able to catch uh, some of the comments there on, uh, on what they're doing with yeah. um, telehealth and remote care? And, uh, and so I'd love to just, it yeah, it's, this is, uh, <clears throat> I was very impressed. I, I, I love the uh, chatting with them. I do it every year, but, uh, and every year it gets better. So, but I'd love to hear some of your thoughts on, um, on you know, where you're seeing you know, healthcare, the trends uh, out there in the industry. Yeah, um, happy to share. I mean, um, so I'm really f- focused on um, on remote care um, from a provider perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, what works and what doesn't work, and um, the, the big trend right now is really like how what tools can we use to figure out what's happening when patients are at home, like um, remote patient monitoring. Um, making sure that all the ones with uh, chronic conditions or where they go home. Um, with the conditions, how to make sure we capture the right data, mm-hmm. um, but also and how can we how can we when I say we providers be more f- efficient in the way we spend our time with yes. our patients and and for the patient perspective as well using telemedicine and and this is happening big time right now with the with the situation with the coronavirus right everybody's kind of like whoa this is probably something that we could use and so. Very interesting time to see see what's happening right now. I completely agree. I mean, I can imagine what's doing to uh, to what you know your company and and uh, and others like it. It's just uh, the outreach and the, and the need. I mean, we've all known it's been there. We've all been pushing it for many many years. However, 
it's just, it's, it, as I mentioned earlier, it takes a pandemic <laughs> to get people off the sidelines. <laughs> not, you know, not, not just the care providers, but also the, um, the regulators. We're seeing some great just adoption and moving forward of incentives around telehealth. We saw what yeah. North Carolina did. We, Congress now, I know, is taking this up at another level. So, I mean, what insights do you want to share there? What, uh, from the ground level, what do you see out there? Yeah, no, I mean, it's really interesting. I think a lot of, as you said, a lot of organizations have wanted to do this for a long time, but this is kind of like, oh, well, better get started now because we might have to shut down our practice in two weeks or maybe even next week. How do we do that? Um, So um, I think two things are happening. I mean, there will be a lot. uh, We see that that are just go, go, go right now. And then uh, hopefully it doesn't end up being as bad, but I think that will open the eyes of a lot of organizations that they probably better have to have a strategy about this and get started because it might happen again. Um, right. But the other thing is also all the creativity we see right now. Um, organizations uh, creating care plans for the patients, giving them devices to go home for with, if they are coronavirus positive with an oxygen monitor, giving them a way to monitor the oxygen saturation at home, turning on the telehealth. I mean, it's really cool. Um, to see what what people are doing out there today, um, and um, I think this whole thing, this disaster, is is going to to start a lot of creativity right now and a lot of movement in this market. So it's it's going to be very exciting to see what's happening next. Yeah, and I agree, and I think you're onto something there. And he's even uh, Dr. Alamka mentioned how Mayo Clinic is moving into the home hospital market in Jacksonville, or they said in Florida. And in Wisconsin. So I think you're going to see much more movement in that direction and people are going to be scrambling. Obviously, they'd already pre-planned that. uh, But now I think a lot of care providers out there are going to start to look at what other options are available. You just said it. If we have to close down our clinic, what do we do? How do we still treat our patients? And obviously, telehealth, remote patient monitoring, virtual care, virtual health in general uh, is going to be a significant component. Um, But you've been doing this for many, many years. We're just reacting to it as a society today. Um, but, uh, but, you know, as a leader, you've been doing this for a long time, but what two to three best practices or strategies can you help, uh, you know, can you share with my audience to navigate some of these trends that you just talked about? Sure. I mean, because I think what is also going to happen right now is that we'll see a lot of like cleanup in mature and non-mature technologies that are out there. Mm-hmm. Um, because people will go from saying, Oh, I'll do a telehealth call with one or two patients to say, I'll go, I gotta be able to do this with all my patients. Right. Um, so, which is good. I think that we'll get some mature technologies really out there. Um, as for what you need to look at, I think you need to look at ease of use for both pro- providers and patients. So, providers, integration, single sign-on, I mean, something that is not a standalone uh, yeah. is always important. But, but also ease of use for the patients, right? So, think of, like, how do you want this to use? If you go schedule yourself in for... Um, a flight. Uh, how easy is it to use? How do you check in for your airline tickets uh, or for your, uh, for your airline flights? How do you, anything you do that is consumer facing out there, this is what you should think about when you want to implement something for your patients as well, because now they are not patients in your office where you can control them. Now they're consumers. And if you don't deliver something that is really easy to use for them, they, they just don't want to use it. Yeah, you bring up a good point because the patients, to really keep the patients in mind here as you're looking at technology, you know, you mentioned usability, single sign-on, 
uh, but also patients are now being or consumers. We're, we're you know consumer patients are consumers. We being tra- we're being trained by the airlines. You know we're being trained by people who who supply apps and we you know banking. And you mentioned banking and you mentioned airlines on a daily basis. Yeah. So I know how easy these apps yeah. can be. They should be. And so if you're a health IT vendor and you're not thinking like that from that consumer perspective, you could really really be behind the eight ball. And I love that you bring that up. Yeah, yeah, and I think I mean a lot of. Uh, we've been handicapped a little bit in our industry by patient portals mm-hmm. because patient portals were not built for consumers. They were built mm-hmm. for meaningful use right? Um, by just to tick the box, right? And so everybody's saying, well, patients don't want to do that, but that's not really true, right? It's just that technology was not really built to be used. It was just built to tick a box. Um, and that that is going to change now. So that's uh, very exciting in my perspective. So, and I completely agree. So in the closing minute or so, what should we keep our eye on um, in the future down the road? I mean, obviously we're talking about a lot of futuristic things in some ways, and some of these are here here today, which is wonderful and amazing, but what should we keep our eye on the next couple of years is in the horizon? Well, I think the one of the biggest challenges uh, we are facing now is that as we grow this remote care from being a pilot here and there mm-hmm. to be something that we're doing with all our patients, the amount of data we get um, is going to be, I mean, immense. And how do we, how do we capture the, the important things and put them in front of the physicians? I mean, the physicians today already have a challenge in looking at what data is in the EMR. Right. And now we're taking, talking about triple, tripling <laughs> that amount of data. Um, and so this is a big focus of ours is how do we, how do we make sure we get the important things to the physicians when we are doing remote care. That, that is really what I think is going to be the next step. That's a great point. Actually, a couple of my guests brought that up before. I know Rasu and Anish and, and John talking about all this data. Now we're going to unle- we're unleashing the data with this new inter- interoperability rule. However, we can't serve all this up to the doctor. Um, and so we've got to, I, I agree, we've got to manage this in a very smart way, not to overwhelm, to focus in, because also you can completely distract or have you know, meaningless data be presented and that's not very functional. So um, completely agree. Yeah. And, it, and if I can add on, yeah. then adding on the communication tools right there. So we're not ending up in a situation where we are virtual in capturing data, but then we tell our patients to come in and talk about it, right? You have to add in the, the telehealth, the, the secure messaging, all that stuff so that you, you get a true experience for the patients and not just half experience I'm going to capture, but then I'm going back to my old stuff. <laughs> that is going to be the next thing as well. Completely agree. And that actually came up on that last panel where they talked about how, you know, 95% of telehealth now is chatting. It's, 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 telehealth is one piece, but then keeping that consistent communication. It's not about, oh, well, come see me next week. No, it's about help, keeping an ongoing dialogue to manage their health. Yeah. And then also habits. I loved what uh, Farhad yeah. brought up about habit formation. Um, and I know that you're probably going to engage all that through your app. So. And you do that today, I'm yeah. sure. So, Yeah. I mean, an all-in-one solution for your patients is, is important. Excellent. Well, Dr. Bobier, thank you. I um, truly appreciate your time. I know we're supposed to have you on air at Hims. I know that you're also disappointed that Hims um, did not go on, but, um, but we completely understand, yeah. and I'm grateful for you taking time out of your schedule to join us today. Thank you so much. Thank you. And congratulations to all what you're doing at Cure for You, to you and the team. So thank you. I'm sure we'll talk soon. Take care. I appreciate it. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. Bye. In Stone, do we have my next guest, Hal Wolf? Yes, sir. President and CEO of Hims. Welcome to the air, my friend. 
Thank you, Hal. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Justin. Appreciate you. I'm, I know that you've been under, uh, I can't imagine what you've been, uh, been going through for the last uh, couple of weeks. I know it just wasn't, uh, that wasn't a single decision. There's a lot that went into that. So uh, we're grateful for you. I'm sure you're exhausted <laughs> what you've been going through, but thank you for joining us on air today, my friend. Thank you. Uh, it's our pleasure to be here. Um, our team at Hims has just been doing a phenomenal job and working so hard. A lot went into the preparation for Hims 20. Mm-hmm. And um, of course, we've got a lot of work we're doing right now and moving forward as well towards Hims 21. Um, a lot in between. So we're thrilled here today to talk to you about it. Yeah. No, and I do, I do want to take a special point. Um, I have, uh, we're, I've been, this would have been my 23rd hymns um, to attend, uh, but I, I've never met a, a more dedicated, thoughtful, strategic, hardworking team as the hymns organization. I, I respect you guys from top to bottom and, and what you deliver every single year to us. And I'll tell you one thing. I mean, I've ha- I have the, you know, thought leaders and in, in, uh, marketing directors and sales directors from very large organizations to very small organizations reaching out to me saying, you know, we just lost our biggest lead generator. We just lost our biggest collaboration at the end of the year. You know, what do we do? And so uh, people are scrambling, but it, it's a testament to what the HIMSS organization has built over the last uh, 58 years or how long have I mean, how many years have you guys been going? Do you know? Is it? Uh, yeah. Like yeah. HIMSS has been around uh, literally close to 60 now. And, um, you know, it was an unavoidable action yeah. that we had to take. For sure. But really, you're talking about protecting the health and safety of the global hymns community, uh, the employees, our residents, our attendees, everyone who was involved with it. So it was it was tough yep. because you each hymns takes about 18 months right. uh, to plan and prepare for. This was going to be spectacular, no question about it. We feel very comfortable. We did absolutely the right thing. Yes. Um, and I really appreciate your comment about our staff and our organization. I am so fortunate to yeah. have the opportunity to represent them here today. They have worked tirelessly in preparation for this week. And, of course, they have been working even more yes. so um, to make sure that everyone is uh, settled and we move forward in a positive way. Um, and we've heard that a lot. That a lot of people miss it, a lot of lead generation, a lot of business, of course, has done at HIMSS, and most importantly, a lot of tremendous thought leadership Yes, uh, and, and the ability to exchange ideas and the power of community together um, is one of the great hallmarks of HIMSS. We are a mission-based, member-led organization with over 80,000 members across mm-hmm. the globe, and it was heartbreaking, and at the same time, it also underscores the value of the organization at the same time. So um, it does. just terrific. And again, thank you for that compliment. Yeah, it does underscore the value. So what's, please share any thoughts or initial plans that you have for a virtual HIMSS 20. You bet. Um, actually, we've been working very hard on it. And we're calling it HIMSS 20 Digital. We'll be launching it in full scale next week. But we actually kick it off tomorrow. Oh, wow. So what we've decided to do is we're taking um, the presentations from HIMSS, we're getting re-permission to utilize them. We hope to bring as many of the presentations forward for the community to see, not just in one week, but we'll spread it out over some time. And tomorrow at 12 noon um, central time, we're actually going to be having one of our first live sessions. And this is going to be with Dr. Amy Compton Phillips, who's the Chief Clinical Officer for Providence. 
And she's going to be literally showing how her organization rapidly mobilized on the ground, because they are fundamentally ground zero for the COVID-19 epidemic. And we'll be doing a live video stream event with her. And she has some tremendous insights. We think it's going to be a great learning opportunity. And then we're going to have further updates on HIMSS 20. We'll be listing um, all of the events that will be coming up. And people will soon be able to find that on www.himsconference.org. Fantastic. Thank you. I didn't realize you're launching all this tomorrow. So we're good. Great timing. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, we're kicking it off. And we're going to have a special section, obviously, on the COVID-19 We'll also be looking around the globe. There are other hotspots. They're dealing with it. There's some insights that people can gain as to what's happening on the ground and how to take care of it and learning from the hospitals themselves. We know that's of huge interest to our members, um, and we feel obviously yes. rather close to the situation given our circumstance. And so we really want to turn it into a positive learning. Fantastic. Thank you for that. So what's next for Hims this year? And obviously the, the virtual conference here, the Hims 20 Digital. Um, but what's next for Hims, you know, later this year in, in 2021? Yeah, well, it's, it's a great question. We have a, a number of major initiatives underway. So first and foremost, we're going to continue to add as much value as possible to our members. It's very important for us on the thought leadership and learning, just like what we're launching uh, tomorrow with Hims Digital. We've also recently been a part of the launch of the global consortium of eHealth on interoperability. And this is literally an international coalition. Um, the leaders of it are Hims, HL7 International, and IHE. Excellent. And fundamentally, it's dedicated to ensuring that digital health innovation and efficiency through interoperability deployment uh, with the patient in the point in care gets information, it's available, you can have your information follow with you on a global basis and really puts a highlight on the standards. This is critical. This is critical for the exchange of information as your last guest was just talking. Mm-hmm. So we're excited about the uh, consortium. Um, ONE is involved in it and governments from around the world. We're launching, we just recently put out our new definition on digital health. Now, yes. digital health is a nebulous term. We really felt it was important for us to get some concrete feel around it. And we'll be announcing formally um, our digital health index, which utilizes a tremendous amount of the detail within the definition of digital health, over 1,200 data points. We'd be putting that out on the market so that fundamentally systems, hospitals themselves can start to access their own digital health. And of course, IMS 21 in Las Vegas, uh, March 1 through 5 next year. We're very excited about that. Mm-hmm. Everyone who had a registration this year at HIMSS 20, and this is this is our positive policy that we've always had, yep. that's going to be applied to HIMSS 21. So if you have your registration this year, automatically know that it's going to be forwarded to HIMSS 21. And we're excited about welcoming a lot of people into Las Vegas next year. Fantastic. I always love Las Vegas as one of the venues. So fantastic. It's going to be exciting. Excellent. So um, your predecessor, Steve Lieber, was very close to the show uh, as I forwarded to your team yesterday. They, um, Steve always helped me kick off my, my HIMSS radio shows, starting with, uh, with HIMSS 15. Stone, you were there, my producer here in the studio. Um, <laughs> so I'm not going to say how old we are, though. Right? Don't, <laughs> no, please don't. <laughs> don't run too long. But um, 
But I, I, I would, personally, I want to get to know you better. But also, what's your personal vision for my audience, um, your personal vision for the HIMSS organization over the next three to five years? Yeah. Um, first of all, it is great to know you, and I look forward to, to getting to know you even better. Um, HIMSS is a special place. You know, our fundamental mission is to reform the global health ecosystem through the use of information and technology. And it was important, as you remember, a year ago, we split apart information technology into information and technology. Yes. Because just as you've heard multiple times today, it's how we use the information for the advancement and the betterment of care and care delivery, which now becomes one of our critical goals and opportunities, right? So the vision where every single person can have the full potential everywhere of their health, this is our goal. So what we are going to be focusing on for HIMSS is continuing to educate, bring together the best thought leadership around the globe, to create relationships with organizations like the WHO and other nonprofits like we are in order to really improve health no matter where you are. So whether you're in a small village and you don't have access to infrastructure or if you're in a large city and you happen to sleep next to infrastructure you don't have access to, or simply you do have access to your own information in the best, our goal, no matter what, is to realize the full health potential of every human everywhere. Hims is dedicated to it. It's why you see our staff so dedicated and hardworking. We believe in this mission, and we are going to do everything we can to continue to improve health around the globe. I love it. That's fantastic. Impressive. So how, how long do you think this is going, you know, what does your next couple of months look like as you kind of close that, as you're just personally kind of managing, you've got uh, the HIMSS digital coming up, you've got um, just kind of navigating now, even kind of strategizing, as you said, it takes 18 months to pull a, an annual conference off. You have HIMSS 21 <laughs> coming up, but what is, you know, in a day in a life of what you're looking at, um, what are some of the high points that you're going to be coming into in the next uh you know, four yeah. weeks, eight weeks. Well, we're, we're, we're thrilled. We're thrilled about launching Kim's Digital, obviously, because mm-hmm. it gives us a new platform to be able to con- continue the learning year round. We already do that through the Kim's Learning Center, but we want to make it a more special environment. We're putting a huge emphasis on member value, and mm-hmm. we'll be expanding our membership internationally. We've been expanding rapidly. Yes. So. Recently, a lot of our content has gone all the way out to six different languages. We're going to continue to expand that. That's very exciting for us. Yes. Um, And then I think in the end, when you get back into what do we do every single day, well, we have more events. I mean, HIMSS Global Conference uh, is fantastic. It's unbelievable in size and scope. But our European conference, um, the HIMSS Health 2.0 Conference in Helsinki in June, We're going to hope um, that the uh, virus situation and all the pressure it's putting on healthcare systems around the globe starts to rescind by June. So we're very focused on the Helsinki conference right now. And we'll continue with our webinars and other events for HIMSS, which are available at HIMSS.org, really to keep the thought leadership and the conversation going. And I do want to come back to the consortium really quick, Justin. Yes. This is very important. This is very important. Justin, for the ability of our ecosystem to begin to utilize information, we have got to get the standards communicated and shared. 
And that is the reason we took on the interoperability consortium that we're so proud of. So take a look at that over the next couple of days as the formal announcements of it kick off. Um, we're very excited. We hope many groups will join and be able to share best practices on interoperability and standards. Fantastic. That's a great position to be in. Hal Wolf, President and CEO of HIMS, thank you very much, my friend, for joining the show and really sharing what you did. This is, this is, uh, this is exciting to see what's coming up. It's absolutely my honor, and we'll look forward to getting together. You got it, and we'll certainly see you in Las Vegas, if not sooner. Thank you, Hal. Appreciate it. All right, and I just want to say thank you to all my guests. This was an amazing show, amazing day. Um, Roberta, thank you. Um, Stone, thank you. Um, but, uh, but we've got to wrap up here. I know we've had an amazing broadcast, almost three full hours uh, and just want to offer a, you know, just a note of gratitude to all of you know, my dedicated partners out there, certainly you guys uh, here in studio, but um, uh, Lenovo, Rama on Healthcare, um, even Intel has been great through the years. Um, but uh, Roberta, you want to say a couple of things here, please? I have some takeaways, don't you? Please, yes. On, on, the, whole three, on the whole three hours? Sorry, I have some takeaways. Sure. <clears throat> First, I love the fact that Everybody was listening to everybody else. I know. That's not what we got when we did the live here this summer because they were coming into the station. And you would not have got that at HIMSS either. Correct. It's very true. Because they were there. So I love the fact that how many of those people said, I heard that person and they – So the flow of this was very good. I I really like that. I think you got three new hashtags you have to – I know. I love it. I know. Right, right, right. (laughs) Cures Rule ONC. Wearable wisdom and digital dignity. Right? Love it. Yes. Yeah, those are our, our new hashtags. Don't forget that all the rules stuff is at healthitgov slash cures rule. Yes. And they have like a whole whole thing out there. They, they've they do, got, done all, a great job. It's very well organized. It's very easy to understand. Very complex topics and explained in very simple ways. Simple graphs. They do, they do very wonderfully comprehensive infographics that you can – it's actionable intelligence in its best. So. The other thing I liked, and I didn't notice when I looked at the lineup and then we started talking to them, a lot of these people that are now in in the vendor world and everything else have this government experience. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have, and some yeah. bit, and some it's big. helpful. It's yeah. very helpful. They yeah. have they have lots of there. That, I like that too. Yep. Um, and Hims Twenty Digital, mm-hmm. and that's like kicks off at noon tomorrow. tomorrow so noon central. Yes. Yeah. Live, uh, on YouTube, I guess they're doing it. They, they said live stream. Yep. So maybe I, I, probably I from, misspoke the, on. from their website. I'd probably go to the, yeah. Right. org. their website. Um, yep. the conference. Yeah. Hymns conference org. Yeah. So what did you think? About the day was phenomenal. I, I mean, know. it kind of, it flowed very well as it always does. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm grateful for that. Uh, it, it, um, my guests are, are easy. They're all great close friends. And so this is what, uh, makes the, the broadcast every year, as easy as it can be. Um, mm-hmm. People don't realize this is a three-hour straight broadcast. Think about doing something for three right. hours straight, right. and uh, it's a live broadcast. When you see TV, most things have no more than eight minutes straight. You don't stream more than eight minutes. Or, or just think of how many times commercials come up. They come up every eight to ten minutes. Right. We just did three hours straight. Uh-huh. So uh, it just so. And again, my guests are amazing. You guys are amazing. Stone, Roberta, I, I love doing this. This is one of the reasons why. I'll be back. I mean, we're going to keep this going. This is so much fun. Um, I also learned a ton. I did too. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, my gosh, I took t- copious notes mm-hmm. here. I mean, just the panel. I mean, when you mm-hmm. think about it, just the the quality of the speaker, the quality of the guests here, speakers. Mm-hmm. They're all speakers in their own mm-hmm. right, but um, are amazing. And so the, the what they share in in a ten minute block of time is amazing. So I was on two conference calls, two press conference calls yesterday with the ONC and with CMS, and um, I even learned more today too. I know, me so too. I mean, I I had done that. So yeah. They're great guests, and thank you to the ONC for coming on. Yeah, um, when I reached out to them, I expected to have one. Um, I invited <laughs> wine, and they said, "How about all four? I'm like, fantastic. <laughs> right. That's great. Right. So um, it made the show much better. And then obviously, right. there's a lot going on mm-hmm. um, uh, regarding the rules and what was going to be announced. And so it's extremely timey. We're again, we're fortuitous with our timing. I mean, if him, know. you know. All well, we need to get down. together six months from now to see how the and get the vendors yeah. on the show and see how they're doing on no the problem. rules. <laughs> right. I agree. We'll do that. But um, but again, I just want to say thank you to everybody, everybody who's listening today. An amazing show. I hope you took a lot from it. I certainly personally did. That's why I do it. This is an, an amazing show, an amazing opportunity. And also just want to say thank you again to all of our production partners, Lovo Health, Business Radio X, Ramon Healthcare, Healthcare Now Radio, and certainly the HIMSS organization. Their uh, continued support makes this happen. Um, so, and, and thank you again to all of you listeners. Without you, we wouldn't have a show. So thank you for joining us today. And as always, you can tune into This Justin Radio weekdays at 2.30 p.m. Eastern, 11.30 a.m. Pacific. You can go to thisjustinradio.com or healthcarenowradio.com forward slash thisjustin, and you can hear our show broadcast again daily, 2.30 p.m. Eastern, 11.30 a.m. Pacific. As always, you can track me on Twitter at HIT Advisor and use the hashtag thisjustinradio so we can respond to your comments from the show. If you miss any of this broadcast or want to hear more, my shows are always posted on Apple iTunes, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, Spreaker, Google Play, and TuneIn. Also, if you want to see or hear more thought, thought leadership from most of my guests, you can check out the Think Tank at healthinnovationthinktank.com. Thanks, everyone. Have a terrific rest of your day. 